0: you. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Please let us know about our audio levels. Uh, we probably experienced the most technical difficulties we've ever experienced uh, so far doing this show. Uh, so bear with us. And in fact, I think Georgie's screen is actually malfunctioning right now. <laughs> so you just gonna have to bear with us because honestly, I try, we tried really hard to figure all this stuff out, but we couldn't. So I think uh, Skype is altering Georgie's window based on his bandwidth. And so we'll just have to figure that out for another show. But Georgie, how are you, sir? Thank you so much for joining me.
1: I'm great. Thanks for inviting me. You know, thanks for, you know, having the patience of going dealing with my shitty Skype. (laughs)
0: It's it's definitely not you. It's my it's me being a noob to OBS and all these things. Also, like I shouldn't uh, uh, accidentally mute myself this time. So that was a huge problem. Last episode, I have remapped the mute button away from my mouse. And so that should be. Uh, A lot better. So thank you guys. Uh, Okay. So just a little bit of housekeeping stuff. Let me change the window here. Um, Consider subscribing if you're new. We do live streams every other week on Fridays at 6 p.m. uh, uh, Pacific Standard Time. All Super Chats are going to be donated to Mr. Raymond Pete PhD, and we'll read them towards the end of the show. Uh, usually, this is the part where I say if somebody's annoying you in the chat, you can block them. But I've heard of channels getting shut down for really bizarre things said in the chat. So please, like, control yourself <laughs> if you're in the chat. And if there are any like death threats and things, like we're, uh, I've instructed the moderator, Steph, and also me, I'll be looking at it and we're just gonna ban you. (laughs) Like no death threats or no like psycho talk in the chat, because I don't want my channel to be shut down. Uh, And yeah, so please, please uh, bear with us. And then we're changing the show format a little bit. You know, we talked last time. And I think both of us came to the conclusion that the nonstop barrage of uh, patron questions in the middle of the show was kind of, I, I think it was making my, me kind of dumb towards the center of the show. kind of I was kind of tuning out, and I don't think it was the most fun thing for you is answering like 40 questions, you know? I don't want to speak for you, though. How did you feel about it?
1: Yeah, I agree. <laughs> like after 20, it starts getting... <laughs> Even if they're all different, I think people tune out. It's just the attention span of most people is probably around forty minutes. That's what psychology shows. So, if we can keep it around thirty minutes, it's probably ideal.
0: Yeah. So i I, I think we we uh, I think Georgie and I are b- bond under the idea that we want to keep the show as fun as possible for and make it along the lines of our own interests, you know? And I think that's what's going to make the best show, you know? And so it doesn't mean we'll never answer a patron or answer a patron question or anything, but I think we'll just be open to retooling the show. And towards the end of this, we'll try uh, maybe like a call-in segment, but it's, in and, and alpha stage right now. So I don't know really how that is going to go, but, uh, we're just going to go through the, uh, the articles, kind of talk about them. And then if you have a burning question that you need answered, please use the, uh, super chat feature. And that would be the most appropriate way I think of getting your question answered. And also, uh, just because I have it all open uh, this is the Ray Pete email exchange. I talk about it probably every time we do one of these, but this, this has so much information in it. And I really encourage anybody that thinks they, uh, or they have a lot of questions to scroll through it because I think it's just like one of the best resources on the internet, you know? And so, I mean, I go through it and I uh, feel like I know a lot of what Ray is going to say and I'll, and I'll learn a lot of different things. And then Georgie has a Twitter now. So go follow Georgie on Twitter, it's uh, twitter.com/hate it. and yep. um, my Instagram, obviously, I tried to set it up as like kind of a resource thing. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram. And then Georgie and I have like a backlog of older episodes of gener- uh, generative energy podcast episodes. And so if you had an hour or two to kill, the, uh, that might be worth uh, going into. Georgie, anything to add to that list of things?
1: Um, Well, uh, we also have a giveaway. Um, I guess I was was going to get to it. Okay.
0: So yeah, go ahead. Okay. So uh, okay. So I have uh, actually already randomly done the winners. Uh, So. We, we do a giveaway every week, and Georgie is so uh, gracious to provide for ID Labs DC.com supplements. So thank you so much, Georgie. It's it's amazing. I uh, sincerely appreciate it. And so the winners this week were Sydney uh uh Maxi Taxi. <laughs> uh thank you uh Carol Ellerston, thank you, uh Hilgen DG 14 and Vladimir Irfan. So you guys need to email me Danny at Danny Roddy.com, And then I will uh, pass emails back and forth with Georgie and we'll get you whatever. So what, what supplements were you offering?
1: Well, since you, like you started with the talk of it, I think people like that. And I would also add like a, a bottle of Oxidale, um, energy and for Those happen to be the most popular ones that people buy. So I thought, you know, maybe that's what people would like. Sweet. Uh, And again, thank you so
0: much, Georgie. That is just, it's so gracious of you. Okay. So anything else? Thank you, Steph, you know, best moderator on the planet, you know, sincerely appreciate it. She's always here moderating. And is there anything, I feel like there's something I'm forgetting, but anything else, Georgie, before we get onto the news?
1: Not that I am, maybe I'm blanking out too, but (laughs) I I think we covered it all. People will remind us if we forget something. Okay.
0: Sweet. Uh, okay, so our first. Oh, I mean, we didn't really go through this. What was there? An article you wanted to start with?
1: Uh, it's up to you. I mean, I posted. Um, I think you already listed some of some of them in your announcement. Um, let's see. Actually, I like all of them, but let's start with the one about the psychiatric diagnosis are worthless. Most mental conditions stem from stress. Um, I, I don't think we covered this one on the last podcast, but basically. Uh, the article goes into details about how. a Couple of things. First of all, I posted another article for the previous show, which showed that 90% of all depression cases yeah. are due to a traumatic event, right? Yeah. And then you know the WebMD article is really diabolically worded by saying only 10% of people experience depression, you know, not due to, to stress conditions. Well, that's another way of saying that 90% argue, right? And now this article, without quoting WebMD or even referencing it, to it in any way, kind of corroborates this and says, well, psychiatry as it is right now is a very disingenuous profession. Um, like it, it, bases, it bases all the diagnosis on something called the DSM, the, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual of Psychiatric Diseases and it's all based on, on your, your discussion with the psychiatrist. There's some observation as well, but bottom line, there is no objective biomarker similar to the way there are for, let's say, heart disease or inflammation or hypothyroidism. And I'm not saying these are the gold standard, right? You can have something like the TSH test can be very misleading. You have like a normal TSH, but you're still et cetera, et cetera. Still, it helps to have something corroborating your 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 observation as a physician, psychiatry doesn't have that. Like if you talk to a psychiatrist about, you know, let's say you get diagnosed with depression and say, okay, so what made you think that I have depression? Um, then the psychiatrist will say, well, you meet the, you know, we'll go through the checklist. There's I think there's there's like a, something called the Hamilton Scale of Depression, uh-huh. and you basically meet a certain number of criteria, and then boom, you're diagnosed with depression. But what this article says is. But hold on a second, if you go through these, all of these psychiatric conditions, they overlap to such a dramatic degree that there is no single diagnosis that will actually cover your specific symptoms. For example, if you, if you have schizophrenia, chances are very high you will also have anxiety, you'll also have depression, you probably also have obsessive compulsive disorder. You'll probably have oppositional defiance disorder. In other words, when cops try to arrest you, you'll try to fight them off, right? Uh, so all of these things are separate disorders and you meet the criteria for them as well. And you know, you can actually get diagnosed with all of them separately, and it becomes this 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 hodgepodge of diagnosis, but it really it doesn't lead to the underlying cause. And what the study says is, it ultimately these these most of these mental conditions, mental health conditions, stem from some kind of either acute traumatic experience or chronic stress. And so, the, the so basically, the, this this article says the attack on psychiatry is, is two pronged. One, there is no objective definition that really gives you a reliable diagnosis, and two. Psychiatry consistently ignores the causes. The stress is involved because, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, cortisol is known biomarker of depression in every animal model studied so far. Serotonin is actually a known biomarker of depression in most of the animal uh, models uh, studied. Uh, Glutamate is a known biomarker of depression in most of the animal models studied. However, these things are not being discussed by psychiatry. The, The excuse always is... Just because it happens in animals doesn't mean it happens in humans. But this is a very perverse way of looking at things. Why don't we take it the other way around? Unless psychiatry presents uh, evidence that this doesn't apply to humans, I would take that it does because it applies to so many different animal models, right? So the totality of evidence is, is on the side of this does apply to humans because so far no evidence has been presented by psychiatry saying that it doesn't. It's just a claim. They say we don't want this, we don't accept it because it hasn't been replicated in humans. And guess what? Nobody wants to replicate in humans. It's just, it's not it's not considered a desirable um, uh, avenue for, for for a doctor because there is no interest in these biomarkers. There just isn't. Uh, probably one of the reasons is that for many of these, let's say if it turns out that cortisol is, is a direct cause of depression in humans, we know it is, but let's say it's proven officially, psychiatry can't really make money off of this because they're already drugs approved for lowering excess cortisol, such as the drug iu 486 most antiserotonin drugs are also lower cortisol. So there isn't much money to be made. And this is true for most of the objectively known biomarkers of depression. Drugs are already on the market to to um, modulate these biomarkers in a way that treats depression, possibly even cures it for good. And psychiatry doesn't seem to be interested in that. It just wants to continuously expand the DSM to be an even bigger and bigger and bigger Bible of these bizarre conditions when in reality it's probably only one, chronic stress or acute stress.
0: W- weren't you talking, uh, w- was that after a show one time that we were talking about you knew a psychiatrist and they had like a very specific approach of saying that a person would need to admit that they had, some, They were it's like a 12-step kind of program, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So basically, uh, you know, the first thing is, so it's almost like when you go to your psychiatrist, the presumption already is you have a problem. Yeah. So it's just like, the it's very rare you go to a psychiatrist and they'll send you away by saying, oh, nothing is wrong with you, right? Everything's good. Go home. You, your primary care practitioner may, but they base their, their results on, you know, examination and they base the diagnosis based on examination and also the blood tests. Well, uh, first of all, the examinations that the primary care practitioner performs are usually much more objective. You know, they will look at your skin. You know, they will look at your eyes. They measure blood pressure, right? Heart rate. They'll do an EKG, maybe even an EEG. All of these are like dramatic, like light years more objective than what the psychiatrist will do. And what the psychiatrist will do, will put you in the chair and basically at some point will somehow convince you that your relationship with your mother was messed up. <laughs> and, and, then probably, and most people, if they're told this, they will probably in the back of their mind say, Yeah. Can't deny it. (laughs) We do have a complicated relationship and that's it. That's all. That's all it's needed. Once you're into the system, there's really no getting out. You get diagnosed. And from that point on, it's a condition that needs to be managed for life. It's great for psychiatry, but really bad for us.
0: So what you're saying, Tom Cruise was right all this time.
1: Uh, Yeah, but for the right, for the wrong reasons.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, okay, uh, any more on this one, or do you want to go to another one?
1: Uh, I think that's, I mean, that pretty much covers it. Um, let's see, the aspirin now proposes treatment for brain cancer. Um, that's not really news. Uh, apparently, there's a company out there that's been, uh, and I checked on them, they've been in the news multiple times. So they're saying, okay, aspirin seems to work for brain cancer. Oh, wow. Well, how come this isn't front page news? I don't know. But what they're saying now is, well, aspirin has these terrible side effects. GI bleeding, you know, it it irritates the gut, et cetera, et cetera. And also, it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier very well. None of these things are true. (laughs) Remember the studies that I posted? Despite the fact that aspirin is expected to increase bleeding, it actually decreased dramatically the death from bleeding in both the GI tract and the brain. Mm -hmm. So it's It's actually protective against the lethal kind of bleeding. Um, And then on top of that, basically, aspirin, metabolizes in the body into salicylic acid, which very readily crosses the blood-brain barrier. It doesn't need any enhancement. But what these guys are doing is developing a patentable version of aspirin, which has triacetin, and I forget another compound that will basically make it less irritating to the GI tract and, and more and safer. Mm-hmm. All this does is it's a new it's a considered a novel drug, so it can be patented and as such you can submit an application to the FDA and say, look, this is our drug, approve it. And if the FDA approves it, good news is we will know that FDA says aspirin can treat brain cancer. Bad news is uh, this company may actually have some enforcement power and, you know, approach the FDA and say, I want you to start controlling the sales of aspirin because they're undercutting my profit. And to the people that say this is a conspiracy theory, I'll remind them that what happened to the vitamin B6 isomer known as pyridoxamine. A company actually did a clinical trial with one of the naturally occurring isomers of vitamin B6 and got it approved for treating chronic kidney disease. Went up to the FDA and said, this is a drug now. You need to stop its sales because it's undercutting our profit. FDA said, yes, sir. And now pyridoxamine is illegal to buy in the United States without a prescription. You can buy from Canada or Mexico, not in the United States.
0: I forgot what I was reading, but it was like the history of Celebrex. And they were saying, I'm pretty sure it was Celebrex, but they were saying the whole point of that drug was to like make a COX inhibitor like aspirin, but to be able to patent something to sell. And I think, I i, I don't recall the exact price of it, but it's like way more money with way more risks than yeah. aspirin. Yeah.
1: And you remember remember the, the Vioxx drug, right? It yeah, killed yeah. quite a few people. Yeah. And, and all of these Celebrex and Viox, et cetera, they're all uh, part of the family of the so-called COXIB drugs. Um, and some of them are actually stilbenoid drugs. And the most famous natural stilbenoid is resveratrol. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the, the side effects of Viox, which got withdrawn, are very reminiscent to the side effects of resveratrol, which is cardiovascular events, blood clots, you know, um, uh, what else, infertility. Um, and, and various cancers associated with the female reproductive tract, uh, breast cancer as well. So, so it's not a, it's not a coincidence. These these are heavily estrogenic drugs. The stilbenoid molecule is, is very estrogenic. Resveratrol being a very potent natural phytoestrogen, and so are most of the most of the COXIB drugs. I'm surprised that Celebrex is not withdrawn as well. Um, I, I guess it hasn't killed enough people yet. My
0: mom keeps calling me on skype (laughs) jesus christ um mom chill out uh that yeah that is nuts i and this isn't necessarily brain cancer but i i don't know if i mentioned it last time but there was a paper about hair loss being related to a white matter hyper intensities or white matter lesions and so of course Mm i went into google scholar and was typing in like uh caffeine, white matter lesions, aspirin, white matter lesions, I, and and there was a paper from 2014 saying that uh, aspirin helped remyelinate the yep. uh, how do you say it Oli- oligodendrocytes, den- yep. o- oligodendrocytes, um, yes. oligodendrocytes, and so and I think it was an animal model, but the the people were were pretty favorable towards aspirin doing that kind of thing, and so. um yeah, just being beneficial for the brain, basically.
1: So, I mean, it's a very basic effect. Aspirin, I think Pete mentioned a few times, there's a quote somewhere on the uh, online that basically says that although the aspirin chemical structure is much simpler than progesterone, their effects largely over, overlap. Both oppose estrogen. Both of them are thermogenic. Both of them, you know, uh, accelerate metabolism. Both of them oppose nitric oxide. Both of them oppose serotonin, etc., etc. If you look at the at the the various effects systemically, aspirin and progesterone are, are, are largely overlapping. <clears throat> so, considering the fact that progesterone and most of the other neurosteroids are heavily promyelin, it's not it's not surprising that aspirin has the same effect. And most of the effect probably stems from two main mechanism of action opposing estrogen and nitric oxide both of these are heavily involved in the 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 myelination of the nerves uh
0: i think i'm sorry i was doing something while you were talking but uh you said progesterone that katie points out progesterone remyelinates and that was something else that i had read about yeah (laughs) sorry i was changing my status in skype so my mom couldn't call me anymore oh okay okay uh so next article
1: Uh, A call for medical nihilism. To do nothing is also a good medicine. I think that's a great article. It's a great article. It's about a book. Uh, But as soon as I saw that article, I thought, man, Ivan Illich must be clapping in his grave (laughs) and doing backflips from from happiness. (laughs) Because this is something he worked for his entire life. And nobody took him seriously. Everybody thought at the time is, you know, even his supporters – Sadly enough, they thought like what's what's this guy talking about? Look at medicine, we're making so much progress we look at genetics it's like it's probably going to be the future of you know of this of, of the human race. We're gonna be able to re-engineer ourselves, we're gonna cure every disease, we're gonna turn ourselves into hu- superhumans and he just kept saying no, nah, that's not true. I, I don't see it going that way, especially not when it's run by this corrupt um, you know like a cabal, And and these massive government agencies, massive institutions that, aside from generating bureaucracy and killing people, they don't really do much else. Um, And and they do it very expensively, too. Can can
0: Can I just read you a quote, one of my favorite quotes by Ivan Illich? He says, preservation of the sick life of medically dependent people in an unhealthy environment is the principal business of the medical profession. I thought he, like, nailed it.
1: Spot on, (laughs) spot on. And and the reason I like this article is that apparently, if you look throughout the history of medicine, all the way up until the mid-20th century, which is when, coincidentally or not, Ray said this is when the the culture in the United States really, in the Western world in general, really turned towards authoritarianism. Basically, it became just a, you know, semi-fascist environment with, just, with these with these silly decorations to convince people that they really have freedom, but in reality they didn't. Anyways, well, all the way up until the 1950s, apparently even very famous physicians such as the dean of Harvard Medical School thought that officially practiced medicine is largely worthless. Mm-hmm. He even has a quote in that, in, in that post where the dean of Harvard Medical School said, if somebody were to collect all the discoveries of modern medicine and put them in a book and throw them at the bottom of the sea, um, uh, it will be a very good day for humanity and a very poor day for fish. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and, and, and this continued Apparently, I mean, the doctors were so like, uh, so humble. Um, and, and this culture completely disappeared somewhere around the end of the second world war. Um, but the, 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 uh, this book, a call for medical nihilism essentially says that, um, every single treatment aside from antibiotics insulin and aspirin has been utter and complete failure the only thing that we've achieved is as uh, a uh, the only thing medicine has achieved as science is basically conquer infectious disease uh, conquer diabetes right through insulin and then basically discover aspirin but it's really aspirin is not it's, it's not medical discovery the Egyptians knew about it 4 thousand years ago so, but it's more than medicine to kind of put it into more, more widespread use. And this article says, look, um, pick any discipline, any medical, uh, any medical specialty, and, and basically pick any blockbuster drug. There are studies out there that are pretty conclusive that say that this drug is at best a waste of money. And at worst, it's contributing to the, uh, the rate of iatrogenic deaths, which right now are the number three killer in the United States. Uh, cancer is number one now. It surpassed cardiovascular disease, so CVD is second. And now we have iatrogenic deaths: four hundred thousand deaths every year due to medical procedures. And, and by the way, this this rate doesn't include the medical procedures that actually went well. I think it only counts the medical procedures that are that are considered that went south and basically the person died as a result of a medical mistake. Um, I think this number greatly underestimates the, the the real number, which is you know somebody with cancer who died from heart failure because the, the the chemotherapy drug was cardiotoxic. That person's death will not be counted as iatrogenic. They'll simply be counted as dying as a side effect of the cancer. Actually, you won't even be counted as a cancer death, you, and it won't even be counted as a cardiovascular death. It will be counted as something else, like like heart failure, which is you know it's uh, it's it's sort of down sort of down
0: the the road well, well if i remember correctly one of the things he said in his medical nemesis book was that uh, i have it kind of right here but like the doctor's effectiveness is always an illusion like the release of vaccines it, it it's it all, the increase in in health always coincides with a better environment but i guess because of how history is remembered or who it's written by it, the the these like pandemics of problems are said to be uh have been resolved by X Y and Z medical inter- intervention and his point was like that's never the case it's like better sanitary conditions or better nutrition um right and I could and less
1: war right you know less stress on people things like that
0: yeah so uh I could read this but the the combined de- uh, death rate from scarlet fever. Uh, diphtheria, whooping cough, and measles among children up to 15 shows that 90% of the total decline in mortality between 1860 and 1865 had occurred before the introduction of antibiotics and widespread immunization. In part, this recession may be attributed to improved housing and to a decrease in virulence of microorganisms, but by far the most important factor was a higher host resistance due to better nutrition. In poor countries today, diarrhea and upper respiratory tract infections occur more frequently, last longer, and lead to higher mortality where nutrition is poor, no matter how much or how little medical care is available. Did you ever find that paper Ray talked about where it was like an isolated tribe and they di- they gave one third of the people doctors, one third of the people uh, vaccines, uh, Another group got, I'm, I'm butchering this, but it's like one group got vaccines and doctors and then a fourth group. So got f- nothing. Yeah, yeah, got nothing. <laughs> or like a nutritious porridge or something. And they, yeah. they they did the best, I guess, out of all the groups.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I got it, I think it was like three years ago, I remember reading and basically the last group got better food and clean water because they were actually like in nature, they were drinking water that was was found to be uh, like laden with parasites. So they actually, they, they sterilized the water They gave him decent water and decent food. There wasn't really anything highly nutritious. It was just dramatically better than what they used to have. And these people did the best.
0: Yeah. Uh, Not to beat a dead horse, but he also talks about like when somebody's sick uh, in Medical Nemesis, it was like a cultural event, you know, and how bizarre it is that when you're sick now, you go to a hospital where all the other sick people are and how that's like (laughs) never been done before in history and how odd that is. And so – and, and when you were sick, you were surrounded by your family at home and you're not like in the hospital with like a sterile environment. And and the only reason the hospitals existed was like the new, um, uh, machines like x-rays and, and surgeries and things uh, in that book, Rockefeller medicine, men, he, like they described the whole process of, uh, the change of, uh, naturopathic medicine to allopathic medicine.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it. it I think ultimately it comes down to money. Basically, this kind of medicine is monetizable. The kind of medicine where you stay at home and and you 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 know you get better because your life is better um, amongst your family. That's not something that's easily controllable by a system that wants to extract money. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Charge your relatives? They're gonna charge their relatives for just being being present there and providing indirect medical care. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. And actually, it undermines the efforts of the doctors who are probably gonna see you know, a decrease in employment opportunities because if the vast majority of conditions are improvable at home or even treatable at home, then nobody's going to go to the hospital. Nobody's going to call a doctor, um, and then you're going to have a very serious problem. I mean, these people have... Um, most new doctors come out with a, with a student debt, with a student loans uh, north of quarter of a million. So imagine these people are struggling even right now to pay off their debts and, you know... Um, the banks who finance their education are <laughs> very intimately involved in this whole process, and they want these doctors to stay employed, not because they care about their future or you know people getting better because they're getting better, they're getting medical care, simply because they want this money repaid, and this money will not be repaid if the system generates less you know less employment or at least less profitable employment. Uh,
0: I, I know we characterize doctors or I characterize doctors in a certain way, but did you ever see that? Maybe it was a Ted talk of like the crisis of suicides with like new doctors. That yeah. That's kind of, I mean, it shows how difficult, I guess they're.
1: It's not just new doctors. It's the highest suicide rate of any profession. Um, and, and they actually I saw a study, I may have sent it to you two years ago that looked at what happens to the new doctors. Mm-hmm. And they said that you have the kind of like three groups, more or less of equal size. One group gets really depressed really quickly. They basically realize what this whole game is all about. You know, life will be miserable. They will not make money, and they will not help people, mm-hmm. And which is kind of like the worst combination, you know, like all of your efforts were in vain, and you're making people worse. So, so basically the, some of these people, uh, you know, get really depressed. Others get really hardened, mm-hmm. and then it's like basically scarred on people. So the people who get depressed – they either commit suicide or they have a much higher rate of cardiovascular disease, which goes very, it's a very tight correlation between depressive disorders, mental health disorders, and heart disease in general, right? Um, And then the people who got hardened, they didn't get heart disease, but they had dramatically higher rates of cancer. Mm -hmm. In fact, every doctor who survived, I think they call it the first year, the depressing year of, of medical residency, every doctor who went through that without getting some kind of a mental health disorder in other words, they were psych- basically psychopaths. Uh, I think most of these doctors ended up dying from cancer later on, regardless of what practice, whether they went to private practice or, or kept working in the hospital. But basically, the lack of empathy was essentially a surrogate, a very early biomarker of cancer, not just cancer, but dying from cancer in general.
0: It sounds like uh, my attitude while working at the Apple Genius Bar. The lack of <laughs> lack of empathy. <laughs>
1: lack of empathy yes. that's that's the name of the game right now.
0: Uh, okay. Uh, so anything else on that one or next story?
1: I think that's pretty much covers it. Um and um oh well I guess it's some uh, the, I forgot to say the this to do nothing is also a good medicine which is part of the title that's actually Hippocrates said that. Um so this was his thing he he said that the first thing which a doctor should consider, and that's actually, this is where the statement first do no harm comes from. He was very well aware that, that humans, given their limited knowledge and the always changing, the unique context of every patient, you know, the, the uh, constantly changing circumstances and context, this makes the, 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 the profession of a doctor very difficult. And many times it's, you know, a patient would get better if, just like you said, if you provide supportive therapy. Um, but that was considered doing nothing right so so he was very well heard and he said that he said that to do nothing is also good medicine. I added myself sometimes, but it's more mostly for legal reasons. I don't want to get accused of of uh, <laughs> essentially <laughs> telling people not to go and see their doctor. There have been several cases already of people successfully getting prosecuted on the state level for essentially discouraging people from seeing their doctor. It's considered a like like unlicensed medical advice. Like uh, even though it's not a medical advice, telling people not to see their doctor is apparently dangerous. So we need to be careful. Well,
0: um, well here is uh, Ivan Illich quoting Hippocrates. So he says, uh, those who are treated the least probably make the best progress. And he says, for the sick, Hippocrates said the least is best. And then I have another quote, I forget. it's like by a doctor, but it's like, do as much as possible for the patient and as uh and like as little, and something about uh, I'm totally forgetting what it was, but doing a lot for the patient and as little as possible to the patient. I think it was something right. around that line. Exactly. And yeah. uh, and again, like I'm I'm not in my own profession or whatever of talking to people on Skype. You, I have a theory that it's more just the conversation that is the the benefit if there is any benefit in talking to me it would be the the human conversation and um i really don't think it's me uh like imposing my technical information like on the person i i think that's probably usually barely ever helpful you know but uh but that that over a long period of time of of doing those types of things it does seem that just having a good conversation is Part the the biggest part of the therapy, if there is any at all.
1: <laughs> you want to hear an interesting story? Aristotle had a had a theory on that how this works. So remember the quote that if the observer and the observed form a functional system, they're essentially the same. Uh-huh. So what happens is that if you have a good rapport with somebody and they are sick and you're healthy, you transfer some of that health to them. Uh-huh. So there, it's kind of like you're helping them break out of their own helplessness which is at the, at the base of most chronic conditions. It's like when your condition is chronic and it's really not improving, it's usually because deep down you kind of you've given up hope. And Aristotle thought that in many problems, not just help, that's what really, that's that's the help of the interaction. It's seeing somebody just like that rat that sees at least one other rat escape and then they keep fighting. Um, it's the same way, but you know, order. You, The key thing is you have to form a functional system because otherwise, you know, if a person is sick and it goes to a healthy doctor, in theory, they should also be getting better. But if the doctor doesn't care and treats them mechanically just like another specimen, then this functional system doesn't occur. So there's no transfer of health.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And it's one thing, because I've heard Ray say similar things. It's an, it's one thing to hear Ray say it or whatever, but it's another thing to really, ex- like, I feel like I came to that conclusion almost on my own, and then I had remembered what Ray said, and I was like, oh, man, he's totally right. It's definitely not about, like, technical relaying of information or whatever. So I thought that was uh, really funny. Um, yeah, yeah, beautiful. Thank you for that, Georgie. What, um, anything else on this one?
1: Um, I think that's pretty much it. Next one is pretty cool, that imagination is crucial for altruism. So they basically, so they, they found out that in order for people to help out, first of all, people are helpful by default. That's What the study does is also, it dispels the myth that people are really out there for themselves, right? But what it does find is that in order for a person to be helpful, they have to be able, their imagination has to be well-functioning. And we already know that imagination depends on metabolism and good energy, right? If you don't have that, if, if if you're if you're driven by serotonin, imagination is the first thing to go. You become very rigid, very routine oriented. There is there's is no imagination whatsoever. So in order for you to be altruistic, in order for you to feel the, the desire to help, you have to be your imagination has to be functioning and you have to be able to imagine yourself in the position of the person who needs help. Now here is the key part. Not sure if you how many doctors you know but they undergo a very rigorous training to not ever imagine themselves in the position of their patient. It's considered detrimental to both providing the a, a quality of care and also for their mental health. It's basically stated that if you do that, you're going to suffer a burnout, and then you're not going to be able to help your patient because you, you will not provide, you'll be too emotional, right? Mm. So you have to somehow absolve the emotion. But they undergo very specific training and I know the keyword is imagination. They say you should never imagine yourself in your patient's shoes, and which, but I've talked to doctors, and and I say, well, this sounds like you can be empathetic, right? How can you empathize with your patient if you cannot put the, put yourself in their shoes? Well, there are different levels of empathy. Is usually the answer. It's like you can you can feel bad for the patient without visualizing what they're under what they're what they're undergoing what they're going through, and to me that's that's completely. It's bonkers, you know how this this just can't be. If it, it the, this whole functional system depends on the person on the other side seeing that you care about their condition, that you care about their problems, and you and you're accepting of whatever problem they're wanting to share with you. You don't judge, right? You're not immediately jumping into giving advice, unsolicited or solicited. Doesn't matter. It's it's a matter of total unconditional acceptance, which is another I think thing that Ray talked about and Ivan Illich also discussed. Um, yet, this is exactly what doctors are trained not to do or, or Carl Rogers,
0: right Undo- con- unconditional positive regard is that s- somewhere? Right, yeah, right,
1: exactly exactly unconditional positive regard. Um, and this study found that actually, so in order for you to experience that, you have to you have to not only your, your imagination has to be functional, but you have to put yourself in the person's shoes, the person who has problems. Um, and they also found that the more vivid the imagination, the more in other words, which to me is a surrogate for health, the more vivid the imagination, the more willing was was the more willing the person was to help the person in trouble. Which once again not surprising because as we know altruism depends on you being in good health, right? Having an excess of energy that you want to share with the world doesn't always go that way. Some sick people are also very helpful, but usually a person who is uh, you know under the influence of serotonin they will not be healthy. Imagination will will not be there, and. Just get a very... Routine. If you get help at all, you'll be simply, no, you know, they call 911 and they walk away. It's that?
0: <laughs> well, did you ever <laughs> see that article, uh, in Medicine, Science, or Art by uh, Panda? 2006. Uh, but um, he's, he says, for successful practice, a doctor has to be the artist armed with basic scientific uh, knowledge in medicine. And then uh, similarly, I think this... I think this – I don't know this is the same uh, – oh, the same paper. And he also says, the worst man of science is he who is never an artist. In early times, medicine was an art which took its place at the side of poetry and painting. Today, they try to make science of it, placing it beside mathematics, astronomy, and physics. And so, yeah, just that like uh, – I, I, like, I was t- like talking to somebody about um, – their oyster consumption, you know, and zinc being this important mineral, you know, that's lost in a lot of degenerative diseases. And uh, they were, and I, I understand why, why they were asking the questions that they were asking, but it's like, they were saying, well, you know, I put the, my oyster consumption into chronometer and it looks like I'm good on that. And it's, and it's like, you never want to think like, Oh, I'm good. I'm just good. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> what if you need more zinc than what, like just an, uh, weekly oyster consumption? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like I have no idea, you know, like for maybe for somebody not under like extreme stress, like a can of oysters a week would be fine. But I, I don't know the limits to that. You know, maybe Ray has some, uh, very specific point of view, but I, I, talk about imagination, being creative on thinking about yourself and your problems. Can't I think it's really useful to not like, uh, like just thinking, oh, I'm taking care of all my bases and I'm still sick. Like, I feel like that almost means you're not taking care of everything. There's something off, but it can take like a kind of a creative imagination to figure out what that is.
1: Well, in many of the RDAs, uh, they're, they're, I think they were based off of prisoners dying from starvation, right? <laughs> so just because chronometer says you're fine, <laughs> it means you're barely surviving in a concentration camp. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean this is the optimal intake. Um, I think there's also like a, it's a very very pernicious effect on the, of our culture that we have right now is uh, making people distrust their their cravings, right? So if you're craving oysters or you're craving seafood in general. And let's say you've already had like one serving per week. Um, many people will say, no, my doctor said mercury is such a huge risk. Um, I can have more than one serving of seafood a week, and I'm going to ignore my cravings. And just this creates this vicious cycle of trying to go by the numbers, when in reality, the numbers really need to be, um, you know, they need to be uh, taken through the prism of your own unique requirements. And you don't know what your requirements are. They actually change all the time. Um, all you have is a guideline. You you may use chronometer just as a general guideline that you are not eating too little, but that doesn't mean it's sufficient, right? In terms of sufficiency, probably just eating, keep eating oysters until you find out that what is your sickness point. Well, if you can eat oysters every day and not get sick of them, you're probably very deficient in zinc.
0: What's the William Blake quote is, you never know it's enough till you know it's too much.
1: <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh
0: Okay, yeah, I love this article. What uh any more on this or next one?
1: Um, no, I think that covers it. Um niacinamide improved symptoms of ALS, that'll be pretty quick. Uh there was actually the article looked at the microbiome of people with ALS and you know, people without it, and found out that uh, both mice and humans with ALS, they have a, a very unique composition of the of the microbiome. And both both species were low in a bacteria that produces niacinamide um now niacinamide niacinamide is not only synthesized in the gut it's synthesized by cells from the amino acid tryptophan but um they checked both mice and people with als and they found deficiency of niacinamide in both species so they gave the mice um niacinamide and i couldn't get the full article because it's brand new uh (laughs) refused to give me the full study but basically apparently niacinamide improved the symptoms but didn't cure it. Uh, so they're, they're saying there's something else involved. It's not just the deficiency of niacinamide. But I think it still corroborates the idea that ALS is a energetic slash mitochondrial disorder. Um, and if you remember the article from the last podcast, that ALS is basically a condition linked to excessive fatty acid oxidation and insufficient glucose, that the two together you know, corroborate each other very well because niacinamide inhibits the oxidation of fat and promotes the oxidation of glucose.
0: Well, and what was the benefit? The benefit of niacinamide is contributing contributing to
1: that redox balance of the more oxidized. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, two things. First of all, it improves the redox balance, shifts it towards oxidation, but also it, it inhibits the excessive lipolysis. So it's going to shift the, the metabolism towards glucose mm-hmm. and less and away from fat. And that's the, what the, the first study found is that in ALS you do have an excess of fat acid oxidation. And then when you the, the way they treated it, by, they simply provided extra dietary glucose, which I don't see why not combine both. Give the extra glucose and give the niacinamide for an extra effect.
0: And uh, semi-off topic, but that tryptophan conversion to niacinamide, uh, Ray said calcium was important, but I do have a paper yep. that says B6 is important. Was there anything else that is important for that?
1: Let's see. Uh, so I think basically, um, so so without calcium, you start you you synthesize mostly serotonin from tryptophan. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two pathways where tryptophan can go, and I think calcium inhibits the pathway that goes towards serotonin. Mm-hmm. So there's only one remaining, and that's 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 niacinamide. Um, anything else? I think also inflammation is important. Uh, whenever you have inflammation, basically you 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 will tend to move tryptophan towards the pathway for serotonin as well. Um, Anything else? Nitric oxide is also important. Nitric oxide promotes the synthesis of serotonin, inhibits the synthesis of niacinamide. And all of these are um, individual studies. If you go and look, and if you you look for ALS serotonin or ALS nitric oxide or ALS adrenal hyperactivity, ALS like gonadal hypoactivity, Thyroid, etc. Everything corroborates the idea that ALS is simply the the basically the peripheral nervous system manifestation of, of chronic stress, chronic inflammation, chronic endotoxin overload. All of the like the, the 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 portions of the sickness field that that we've discussed before. It just happens that in some people, I guess the nervous system is the weakest link, and that's what breaks. But in reality, it's, it's only one cause and only one disease, really. Um, you know, Ray likes to call it hypothyroidism. I don't because it focuses on the thyroid when reality thyroid could be fine, but there could be things blocking thyroid from functioning. And that's the endotoxin, the nitric oxide, the excess proof, uh, the excess serotonin, excess fatty acid oxidation, etc. cetera. So, yeah.
0: Sweet. Uh, the next one was gorillas have developed human-like societies that are not based on kin. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's probably making Richard Dawkins, <laughs> he's not dead yet, but uh, he's probably rolling in his bed and having <laughs> nightmares. Because, um, you know, if you ask him, he'll tell you that any any large group of animals in the wild are probably heavily genetically related. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, just, he just can't have any other explanation of why a group of animals would basically work. Because whenever you have a group of animals, you always have a little bit of a conflict between the you know, the benefit of the individual versus the benefit of the group. Mm. And in his opinion, the only way of, of an individual will voluntarily relinquish, like basically will work against its own, be- maximizing its own benefit, is if they're related to the rest of the members. So these members combined are essentially worth more than this individual. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, basically, so in, in Dawkins' opinion, um, this is his explanation of why uh, no other species has formed societies at the scale that humans have. Um, however, apparently that's not true. Uh, gorillas, you know, and this was a recent discovery, Studies, this study is very controversial. Um, it, you know, it got attacked from multiple people, of course, all, the, all of them coming from the genetic uh, field. And basically the study found that gorillas develop large-scale society uh, in the thousands um, and most of these gorillas that are there that meet on a daily basis, it's almost like they they have these. They go out to have a drink, but in their case, like they eat leaves or they go drink water. The vast majority of these gorillas are not related, um, and many of them are males. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they have an interest into each other. Uh, in each other, they're just there to hang out, for mm-hmm. lack of a better expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the scientists who are studying them were very surprised. They thought that you know, um, it felt like. Just a bunch of friends, you know, having a good time. There was no better explanation in their mind. So we'll see what happens. I mean, basically, this is a a very new paper. Only one of them, and uh, most of the critique says, "Well, this needs to be replicated, you know, at least one more time before we even take it seriously." Right now, they're considering a, you know, like a like a publicity stunt. Um, You know, until it's replicated, it's so controversial that we refuse to to believe it. So let's see what happens. How did it?
0: uh, What? how did it oppose Dawkins's version of things? Like he, he thinks it's just
1: related to... basically says that these groups of, of, of gorillas have no business hanging out with each other yeah. because they're not related. So a group, uh, like a large group of unrelated animals in Dawkins's mind will disintegrate and, and, and basically fights will break out mm-hmm. and it will become violent because they have no interest in forming a group like that. Mm-hmm. There's just no, there's no, there's no biological reason. The the interest of, of every animal is to survival and procreation. Yeah. It's the self esteem. Yeah. So these people going out essentially, and they weren't hunting together. Mm-hmm. They weren't, and so some proposed explanations were well, maybe maybe they were facing a common threat, and that's why they banded together because to, they realized together they're stronger than than a single individual. That wasn't the case. Um, or maybe they, you know, they needed they need to get into a group so they can hunt together because they're more effective and get more food that wasn't the case either i mean literally if you if you if you read the study the scientists basically say just a bunch of friends taking a stroll in the woods that's the, that's that's what it looked like and they don't have another explanation of why several hundred young male gorillas will will hang out um, for days <laughs> and 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 they will neither fight <laughs> nor hunt <laughs> nor do anything anything aggressive they're just sitting there
0: chilling and eat leaves uh this is a pair of, of uh paraphrase of one of Kropotkin's quotes and its solidarity is a natural law of greater importance than the struggle struggle for existence, which is sung by the ruling class to stultify us.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I couldn't agree more.
0: <laughs> uh, okay. One more from Kropotkin. Socia, sociability is as much a law of nature as the mutual struggle animals, which require habits of mutual aid are undoubtedly the fittest. Sweet.
1: Uh, next one. Um, parents' emotional trauma may change their children's biology. I think we've talked multiple times about that, but now it's become a very mainstream topic. Now now it can no longer be denied. It used to be called controversial idea. Now it's no longer controversial, but now the attack against it is, well, it hasn't been confirmed in humans. It's, it, there, there are some peripheral studies on Holocaust survivors um, but all the studies that you know conclusively prove that, it, that you can have non-genetic inheritance, especially of trauma of anything, right? Because unlike something like diabetes or obesity or cardiovascular disease, like like when you when you're dealing with animals, how do you measure emotional trauma? Like it's not something that that's easy to 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 even diagnose in an animal. So they're saying like, well, until we see this replicated in humans, we don't believe it. But the cat is out of the bag. The in the news is that. Everything you do, everything you perceive during your lifetime, uh, everything, every piece of the environment you interact with, it gets encoded in you and gets passed on to the future generations. And, you know, even this study uh, basically said, you know, uh, that the that the very thought of, you know, how much impact we have over the future generation, not just the next one, but at least three or four, and I, I think post another study which showed up to 14, at least in worms. It's scary just how much impact we have on future generations. So it should give many people a pause or, you know, maybe at least, you know, reason for hope that even if you don't think that, you know, um, your life is necessarily good right now, um, you can make positive change for the future. And that change will affect so many generations after you.
0: Well. Um, I feel like this was first brought to my attention specifically in relation to autism. And Ray said that like the relationship between the mom and dad preconception was a, a contributor to autism. And I was like, oh, that's actually like, and again, that I'm sure you know about him, but that guy Saba, who the imprinting idea and, uh, uh, that being just a better explanation for inheritance or whatever and, and passing down a pathology.
1: Yeah. I want to be surprised because the relation between the mom and the dad will essentially control the mom's serotonin levels. Um, and given how heavily serotonin is involved in the autism pathology, if the mother doesn't feel loved or supported, or, you know, you know, if the child is not wanted, there are many other ways that can, the mom can be under stress, but any kind of a stressful event, especially if it's an emotional type of stress, um, which tends to be very pernicious because people can ruminate on it. Right? It can be long gone, but they can still be they can still be causing themselves stressfulness just by thinking about it. Um, so I'm not surprised at all. I mean, any kind of stress ultimately involves serotonin, and at this point, even even the mainstream medicine is starting to think that serotonin is probably causatively causative causatively involved causally involved in autism. Uh, they're just saying that they don't know which receptor now. So now <laughs> we have seven serotonin receptors. So I'm, I think big pharma is hoping that by the time we figure out which one, they'll be able to sell a few more decades worth of SSRI drugs before <laughs> before the the jury's finally put an end to the sales.
0: Uh, and we'll talk more about this subject. So Emma, Seracus, just uh, fifty dollars. Uh, we'll, that will send to Mr. Ray Pete, super chat. Thank you so much, Emma. And she says, hello, friends. Can't wait to join. So Emma is actually going to join us on the ninth, uh, her 10th. Uh, so look for that. And so we will inject some female energy into this besides my female energy we will inject Emma's and, uh, that should be a good show. (laughs) So excited for that. And, um, yeah. Okay. Next article.
1: I think that's some that's an article that a lot of people will like because it was a post on the forum about it as well. Um, I posted a study not too long ago which showed that cheating is driven by cortisol and more specifically by high high cortisol to testosterone ratio. It's and many people think that it's testosterone that's driving the cheating. It's testosterone that's making people immoral um, and basically making them do bad things and get away with it. No, actually the study showed it's the cortisol doing that. It's the it's the testosterone that's removing the fear of getting caught. Uh, but it's really the, the real impetus, the real drive, the real cause of cheating was cortisol, was stress. Mm-hmm. Um, and what this study did, that was basically evaluate the effects of testosterone. Um, and the great thing about the studies that it was actually, it was an intervention study. They gave the participants testosterone injections. So they actually, unlike other studies, which just, they, they're just epidemiological. They will look at the correlation between hormones and behavior. This one actually checked how behavior changes by people given being given testosterone. So the stereotypes were that you know testosterone will make both men and women uh, not care about morals, uh, be ruthless, um, you know, have a propensity to cheat, um, be uh, be utilitarian. In other words, um, if they're driving a bus and then you know a child jumps on the road and then basically they have a they have a, they have a choice: either you know swerve to the left too steeply, and they have a chance of avoiding killing the child, but also increase the chance of the bus flipping and killing people in the bus. Mm -hmm. So they were saying that people with high testosterone, people given testosterone, will choose to kill the child in the expense of not killing the 20 people on the bus. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that none of these assumptions was right. If anything, giving people testosterone actually made them kinder, more moralistic, or at least more respecting of morals, and more caring about the value of human life in absolute terms. In other words, it made people non-utilitarian. the person driving the bus given testosterone was actually willing to do to avoid killing the child without thinking so much about the people in the back of the bus. and and some psychiatrists have made the call that this is the natural state of behavior because when you're under in this stressful situation, the only thing occupying your mind at that time because we can't really parallel process that's a myth. The only thing occupying your mind directly is the is the problem right in front of you, which is the child being in danger. So there shouldn't be, there can be no such consideration of calculating in parallel. Oh, do I save the people in the bus or do I save the child? Which you know, which uh, the child dies or the people on the bus die? You can't have this. So the natural situation should be: you have a human life that's in front of you, and that human life is in danger. What do you do? And testosterone made people even more caring, even more willing to do dangerous things to themselves, the driver, um, which the driver is also exposed to danger if the bus flips, uh, they, they basically made, testosterone made people more willing to risk their own lives to save another life. Mm-hmm. So if anything, the article concludes that apparently none of none of the stereotypes that we have about testosterone are right. The best we can conclude right now is that we know nothing <laughs> well, well, I think when it I, comes to testosterone.
0: I think I might have gotten this from you, but it was... Uh... Here's the full paper, but it's estrogenic encounters, how interaction between aromatase and the environment modulate aggression by Trainor. and the little section I had picked out was studies con- uh, conducted in a wide variety of species indicate that estrogens modulate aggression. And it says Aro- aromatization to testosterone and estrogen within the brain may mask the relationship between androgens and aggressive behavior. And it's like, it's like fascinating to me how many people don't know that testosterone can aromatize into estrogen like even within bodybuilding and and like uh, nutrition circles it seems it, it seems to be something that isn't uh, talked about that often
1: right if you're given testosterone they're assuming whatever whatever your reaction is is because of only testosterone nothing else yeah and it really it, it should be like look unless you've given me a really end of the pathway hormone, and by the way, we don't even know where the end of the pathway is, right? Mm-hmm. We thought it's dihydrotestosterone, like but then they discovered androsterone and all the other hormones that are even further down the pathway. And now they discovered even other metabolites that are even further downstream of androsterone. So anyway, so whatever you give me, unless it's the very end of the pathway, then you can't really dis- you know, ascribe behavior just to that steroid because you have no idea what this thing is getting. Well, you have some idea what it's getting metabolized into, but not the whole idea. Um, so, yeah. And, and, but you're right. The aromatase has been shown that um, creating genetic mutants that are, they're miss that actually are lacking aromatase completely makes them really, I don't want to say docile because they do fight when you, when you annoy them, mm. but it makes them very non-aggressive. In other words, they will not go and fight with like another animal for over food, over access to like females or whatever they are, it's only when you give them aromatizable steroids um, or estrogen directly for the animals that don't have aromatase. Only then they actually exhibit aggression. Um, and and it made me think about uh, you know puberty and basically how you know um, you know puberty is, is a is a state of stress and it's driven is driven by estrogen. And one of the one of the defining features of puberty, uh, which many people will tell you like this, the stereotype is the crazy teenager, right? But what this really refers to is the aggressive teenager, the teenager that is willing to get into screaming matches with their parents, with his or her parents, or really vicious fight fights at school. Um, and it only usually happens in puberty. Children aren't like that. Children can be can also be aggressive, but it's rare. In general, they're they're content to play with their toys and not really attack others without without any provocation. Teenagers are not like that. They will sometimes. Actively seek out conflict, uh, and most likely this is due to high to high estrogen.
0: What well, was it, David Butter uh, Butterworth? Is that his the gentleman that interviewed you? You did a few interviews with David, which yep. were excellent, and he interviewed Ray, and uh, Ray said that. Girls now are are hitting puberty at like nine, whereas he thought it was normal to hit puberty around 18, (laughs) which is like nice. Yeah. He said 18. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what he said. Uh, Yeah.
1: When I was, uh, I I must've been like six or seven and and at the time Bulgaria was still communist country. So I, I don't know why my uncle is a doctor. I was reading one of his medical books and he's a gynecologist, gynecological surgeon. So it was basically the book was on um, basic female reproductive medicine, and I remember reading that they were saying they were talking about puberty and they said that the normal age of puberty in Bulgaria is between thirteen and fourteen years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, oh wow, that's that's like that's really old. Like uh, you know, that's because at the time I was like six or seven. So I thought, oh wow, that's like twice my age. And now I recently saw a publication again in Bulgaria, and they're saying that the age of puberty is between eight and nine. So it's kind of like right there where where like the with the general, the general trend is earlier puberty, which means of course shorter lifespan, you know, poor health, um, and you know, in general, more aggressive, less empathetic people.
0: Crazy. Uh, okay, so avoiding sunlight may be as bad for health as smoking a pack a day. Smoking yeah. a pack a day. <laughs>
1: Smoking a pack a day. That's 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 a great article. It's like it's almost as if, as if Ray wrote it. Um, <laughs> because it covers so many different aspects of the benefit, the benefits and the risks of, of sunlight exposure, right? So the article goes right into saying, look, um, yes, exposing yourself to sunlight. So it starts with a doctor who's been seeing a lot of patients. I think he's a der- he was a dermatologist, and basically he he saw that he noticed that all of his patients who had a lot of sunlight exposure had a wrinkled skin. And a lot of skin cancer, but not, not melanoma, mostly the basal cell carcinoma and the squamous cell carcinoma. Mm-hmm. And those tend to be surface cancers and local, and they stay, almost always stay localized, and almost nobody dies from them, even without treatment. Mm-hmm. And he noticed that the people with the cancers and the wrinkled skin were dramatically resilient, full of life and energy. They, were, they basically, you know, were kicking, and, you know, they were active, extremely active, even in very old age. And then on the contrary, he saw that the people who were avoiding sunlight or using heavy amounts of sunscreen, they had perfect skin, uh, they looked perfectly healthy with soft pink, amazing young looking skin. Yet these people kept showing up with a number of really bad chronic conditions. Mm-hmm. that many of them were actually were really dangerous and/ or potentially lethal. Mm-hmm. And he thought like, you know what the hell is going on? Well, this article uh, discusses a uh, uh, recent study done in Sweden. It's the largest of its kind. It covered thirty three thousand people and basically showed that that uh, uh, exposure to sunlight corresponds with dramatic decrease in all cause mortality, regardless of the of the conditions that people have. Not only that, it showed that even though yes, the people with more sunlight exposure had more cancer, and actually even some of the some of them even had more melanoma, these people had lower mortality than people without melanoma or without any cancers. So it's, it, it really throws a wrench into what really means to be healthy, in my opinion. I mean, like if you tell somebody you have melanoma or any kind of a cancer, it, by by all standards of any modern Western medical system, you'll be considered quite sick, right? You'll be undergoing chemotherapy. They'll be trying to excise that tumor, burn it, right? Um, you know, all kinds of different procedures, Um, And the doctors will be quite worried about you. And, you know, you'll be considered a cancer survivor, where apparently, (laughs) based on that study, you're actually much, you have a dramatically lower chance of dying, either from the cancer or any other condition, cardiovascular, neurodegenerative, autoimmune. First of all, you had lower risk of getting these things. And second of all, even if you did get them, you were at a dramatically lower risk of dying. Mm -hmm. Um, than if you did not actually have any any sun exposure at all, and it, it was a, it was a dose so called dose response relationship. The more sunlight you got, the lower your chance of dying, and and actually the the longer your lifespan. So, and this this one doctor who looked at the study said, you know, if I didn't know any better, he's like, if I have to make a comment based on the data of this study, it looks like avoiding sunlight is as bad as picking up smoking, not just picking up smoking, but smoking a pack a day.
0: <laughs> I mean, uh, I, the sun is, is, it's sunny and hot here, but it's very cloudy. And so I haven't laid out for about like probably a month or so. And it, it has like a dramatic effect on me. It's really just that breaking up the day and go laying out in the sun. I mean, it's not, not surprising at all. It's like really, something I've, uh, I miss a lot when I can't go lay out.
1: Yeah. But, but I think it's the, the, the main point that I, I try to emphasize that article that it kind of like changes your idea of what it really means to be healthy, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. If, if the goal is not to die mm-hmm. and to be as energetic and actually as systemically healthy as possible, mm-hmm. apparently it's perfectly fine to have cancer. Yeah, <laughs> It's we'll have a less lower chance of dying. Even if you give yourself cancer, and even if that cancer comes from the tanning beds, which uh-huh. do nothing but UV lights. Yes, because the study actually covered tanning beds. And even those people did better mm-hmm. than the ones who, who avoided any sunlight exposure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that it, what you're saying is the people that looked better were actually, they were unhealthier. Yeah.
1: They were actually dramatically, yeah. dramatically less healthy than the people who looked a little bit older, wrinkled skin, you know, looked like people that work in the field. But those people were systemically healthier. And then- uh,
0: not to speculate too much, but raise, I haven't seen the article. I should try to track it down. But he was saying that a lot of the negative effects of sun exposure were because of the type of fat in the system,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah. If he's saying that, you know, take a little aspirin or a little niacinamide or like a little bit of coconut oil. Um you know, to a large degree, prevents like the uh, the lipid peroxidation, which is what most of the damage stems from. And and of course, if you're deficient, then you know, if you're deficient in the PUFA, then sunlight is actually not going to be that much of a danger. If you're really worried about that sunlight, then all you need to do is you know sit and get exposed to window, and that window absorbs most of the uh, really dangerous, like the high energy UV light. So you're getting just a good portion of sunlight. And you're still synthesizing vitamin D. Yeah.
0: Sweet. Okay. Last article. Uh, sometimes to do nothing as as cancer treatment is also a good medicine. We kind of talked about this already, right?
1: Kind of talked about. Yeah. I just I wanted to post it because it's an article in the Wall Street Journal, and it's by a leading oncologist who uh, essentially is making the call for saying that um, you know we actually we're kind of over treating cancer. Mm-hmm. We really don't know what cancer is. Um and, and, and he lists a number of different examples that um he says that every oncologist has patients who live with their cancer and they're perfectly fine. And he gives also gives a number of examples where patients were told, look, you're not a candidate for chemotherapy, you're not a candidate for surgery, you should get your affairs in order, and that's pretty much it. And then these people said, You know what? I refuse all further treatment. And guess what? These people outlived by many years. All of, the different, all of the other patients who are, who were candidates for therapy and who are getting the latest and greatest and most aggressive treatments that uh, medicine had to offer. And another thing which I liked in that article is that this oncologist says, listen, for most of the cancers that we know, that we've studied, it actually takes a decades for this cancer to get to the point where it's diagnosable, where it actually can cause a problem. So that what that means is that given that cancer cells are present in almost every individual, most people are probably living with cancer without them even knowing. Mm-hmm. So if they can survive for decades without this cancer causing problems, and if we can choose for, for certain cancer types to do nothing, prostate cancer is probably a very good example, mm-hmm. why can't this be done for all cancers? Mm-hmm. There is something deeply wrong by us, targeting these specific cancers with these highly aggressive treatments, many of them lethal, but we don't we, we refuse to recognize the fact that, you know, of course it's anecdotal evidence because it's as no trial has been done where people have not gotten any chemotherapy or radiation or surgery because it's considered unethical. But he's saying the anecdotal evidence that we have from every patient so far seems to be that if they refuse any treatments, they actually live longer and, and often dramatically longer than the people who got the latest and the greatest. Wasn't, wasn't there a quote somewhere yeah, from... I, from Ray I, I, have, I have it right up here. If you choose to do nothing... Right? Yeah,
0: it's Hardin-Jones from 1969. And he says, the possibility exists that treatment, radiation, chemotherapy, surgery, makes the average cancer situation worse. And it says, um, neither the timing nor the extent of treatment of the true malignancies has appreciably altered the average course of the disease. The possibility exists that the treatment makes the average situation worse. And there was... Uh, I, I, f- I probably have it here, but um, oh, this was the, probably the quote you were thinking of. It says, "If one has cancer and opts to do nothing at all, he will live longer and feel better than if he undergoes treatment." Yeah, and that was in that's the literally
1: 50s. that's literally the the gist of the of the message of the article. But this guy's a famous oncologist. He d- doesn't quite say it, but you can get from his tone. He's basically saying whatever it is that we're doing right now, it's not working, and my patients who choose to do nothing are doing dramatically better than everybody else who I ever tweeted. Yeah, insane.
0: Cool. Okay, uh, just take a quick break uh, to say, uh, regurgitate all the things I said in the beginning. Uh, consider subscribing if you're new. We do live streams every other week, Fridays at 6 p.m. Uh, PST. Uh, all Super Chats donated to Mr. Raymond P. And so if you actually do have a question, this would be the time to submit it because we're about to go through the Super Chats. Um, looks like the chat is great. I won't <laughs> like repeat the... Don't say crazy things. Uh, And yeah, I think that should cover it. Uh, infinite thanks to Georgie Dinkoff, my Bulgarian brother. Thank you so much. S- sincerely appreciate it. You have reinvigorated my s- spirit for live streams. And so if uh, if you weren't here, these wouldn't be fun. So I uh, s- sincerely appreciate this just because uh, Georgie is just being here from the goodness of his heart, uh, making these shows what they are. And I sincerely, sincerely appreciate it. Thank you so much, Georgie.
1: And thank you to and Steph. Thanks to the audience and, and Emma and Steph and everybody else who is so watching these things because without them we wouldn't be here either, right? Thank you to the audience. Huge
0: thanks to Steph. Uh, yeah, these are these have been so much fun, and um, I think we were chatting. We're on episode seven, you know, and I was thinking like, what it's gonna, what is what are things going to be like at episode one hundred? So our Really, our long-term goal is just continue doing these, learn in the process, make them better. And and the Patreon questions was one of the first things that's kind of like, yeah, that seems to kind of be starting to get a little bit boring. And so, um, yeah, it was, our commitment to you guys is that we're going to try to make these fun and interesting, and you don't want us like checking out and, to, or, and becoming monotone or me falling asleep or whatever. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, let me switch. The screen here. Transition. And if you guys see Georgie's small window, we were having some technical difficulties today. I'm sure that will be remedied by the next stream. But again, learning as we go. Couldn't figure it out before we went live. Try to, though. Uh, Okay, so we're going to read some Super Chats here. Uh, Craig Doe. Thank you so much, Craig, for $25 uh, of some type, a dollar, I don't know. what. He says, great work, guys. Two things in layman's terms, angiotensin system, how it affects blood pressure, and besides meds, alternative to balancing blood pressure out. Uh, Second, my friend has two uh, uteruses. What's happened? What happened? Mom's diet or too much? estrogen or chemicals so first question about angiotensin and blood pressure and presumably aldosterone and then the second one about his the friend's mom having two uteruses and how did that happen
1: yeah um, so basically the the angiotensin is a um, it's like a peptide that's released from um, from the kidneys right and it, and it, it regulates the uh, blood pressure and it's part of the so-called the, the Iranian angiotensin system. Um, it also regulates the synthesis of aldosterone and electrolyte balance as well, as well as the vasoconstriction of the major blood vessels. So, inhibiting the release of that peptide uh, basically helps the blood vessels relax. But that's just one of the many mechanisms, right? So, as we uh, posted in, in a number of different studies, um, other hormones such as aldosterone and especially cortisol uh, play a role. Uh, but it looks like the major the major cause of vascular stiffness and eventually vascular calcification is the activation of the aldosterone receptor of the mineralocorticoid receptor by cortisol, not by aldosterone itself, but by cortisol. Even though aldosterone itself, in, even in physiological uh, levels/ doses, uh, it can it can cause uh, a it, it, it can it can it can it can raise blood pressure. Um, so the angiotensin inhibitors are are not bad drugs. They have some um, some some benefits that weren't expected when the drugs were developed. I think many people are familiar with the sartan drugs, like uh, telmisartan, uh, losartan, and valsartan. And I think especially telmisartan is a drug that's uh, relatively famous because um, uh, athletes abuse it. Yeah, it's 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 abused as a performance enhancing drug. It basically increases the uh, the number of mitochondria in the cell. And as such, is used by athletes that do endurance type of sports. Um, it's not entirely clear how it does that, but another drug, losartan, was shown to basically um, uh, increase the synthesis, the, the synthesis rate of nucleotides on which the, the the generation, the the mitochondrial biogenesis depends. And there is also evidence that some of the angiotensin II inhibitors are also they also inhibit the uh, enzyme carbonic anhydrase. So, in other words, they they increase the levels of carbon dioxide in the body, and that also contributes to the uh, to increase in uh, mitochondrial biogenesis.
0: And then, do you have any idea about two uteruses? Just uh, some kind of
1: developmental thing. So, two uteruses sometimes basically sometimes it happens if if the body was was um, was attempting to actually create two fetuses, mm-hmm. um, and the process didn't complete entirely. Um, I know people who have taken the drug. Uh, Clomid, clomiphene. Mm-hmm. It's usually given as a fertility drug. Um, it, it is a CERM, Selective Estrogen Receptor Modulator. That drug is notorious for making women have twins or triplets or even higher number of babies. And or uh, when they basically give birth to uh, like a single baby or two babies, s- sometimes the males will have multiple penises mm-hmm. and or the females will have will have multiple uteruses or ovaries. So in my my guess would be that estrogen is involved because even though clomiphene is a serum, it's actually highly estrogenic, especially in the brain. Mm-hmm. So it does something, it affects the brain of the fetus and the mother in a highly estrogenic way. And estrogen being a proliferating hormone and being highly responsible for the growth of the uterus, it, it doesn't, it's it's plausible that that uh, that's one of the causes uh, for having multiple uteruses.
0: I don't think you mentioned it, but uh, PTH activates aldosterone. And this is one of the reasons Ray is a fan of calcium and that David McCarran was the guy talking about calcium's anti-hypertensive effects. Um, I'm sorry if you mentioned that. Um,
1: Which one activates aldosterone?
0: Uh, doesn't parathyroid hormone activate? Uh, yes. Yeah, because yes. th- David McCarron's work was finding that there was elevated PTH in hypertensive people- and um, wh- how would you describe uh, hypertension? Is it just like the rerouting of blood to the central organs and kind of the tightening of the vascular system?
1: Well, it's, it's actually the per- the perception of peripheral tissues of not getting enough oxygen or nutrients, mm-hmm. and basically they send a signal which makes the, the heart pump harder mm-hmm. and increase the blood flow, right? Mm-hmm. But, but if, the, if the vessels are constricted, mm-hmm. they can not dilate to accommodate an extra flow. Yeah. And that extra, the basically the, the increased pumping of blood, it creates an increased pressure mm-hmm. because it based, based on the area of the blood vessel. Yeah. And if the vessel can't expand, like a higher rate of flow at the same area will result in a higher pressure. So, and that, that stiffness, that calcification eventually, it starts as a stiffness, but eventually becomes calcification is apparently driven by the mineral corticoid receptor, which is activated by aldosterone and cortisol in higher doses. And just as you said, paratory hormone increases aldosterone synthesis. It also increases serotonin. And serotonin is heavily involved in in, uh, in blood pressure, in high blood pressure as well. Mm. Uh, every single anti-serotonin drug currently in use is known as a hypotensive drug as well. The most famous one being ketanserin. Um, which is a highly selective slash specific antagonist of the 5-HT2A receptor. And it did, it's still considered the gold standard for rapid decrease in blood pressure in people that don't respond to uh, beta blockers, such as propranolol or angiotensin inhibitors. So if, basically, if you don't respond to anything else, they will give you ketanserin, And so far, ketanserin works 100% of the time.
0: Sweet. Thank you so much for that, Georgie. Uh, Shmon Frontal says, as promised for Danny, last answer in the comments. I answered a, a question for him in the comments, and he, but he didn't need to do that. But thank you so, so much for that, Shmon Frontal. And we'll, again, we'll just send it to Ray Pete. Uh, James N for uh, M for 20 pesos. Uh, what is Ray Pete's ethnicity slash family history? Uh, If you can get a hold of uh, the On the Back of a Tiger like three-hour interview with Ray, he talks about his family. His dad was like a sign maker. I think his mom was an artist at one point. Uh, He lived in In Indio, California, I think was his family. And I don't don't actually know. I I couldn't say what their ethnicity was. Do you know that by chance?
1: I have no idea. I mean, he looks Caucasian, but everybody's an immigrant here, so... (laughs) He must be from somewhere else. <laughs> uh, I know it's not a popular thing to say, <laughs> but but I guess his dad
0: had he was like anti-war activities like that would meet in his sign shop. He said uh, so he had, he has like a and he called his parents like co-conspirators. So seemed to probably yeah. have a pretty good relationship with them. He had a brother, but I don't I don't really know that much information on that. And uh, yeah, and thanks to David, we know that uh, his friend had a cat named Aphrodite. Did you hear that story?
1: <laughs> he, Ray had a cat in the name is I think Aphrodite.
0: He, Ray was talking about how he was talking to his friend's cat and that he just had to speak clearly and that his cat, the cat could understand what he was
1: saying. Ray thinks the cat the cat understands You got to you got to
0: listen to it. I want to butcher it but it's like it's such a gem. It's like the two, 2019 Ray gem story and David Butterworth in his last uh Interview with him kind of got it out of him. It was, it's pretty funny. uh Okay, another one from James M. for fifty pesos. Thank you so much, James. He says, "With raw, uh, with enough raw materials, why is T three underproduced? The negative side effects of supplementing it many don't match uh its supposed, uh, supposed action in the cell.
1: Because there are multiple thyroid inhibitors, so you can so thyroid hormone is synthesized from the uh- Amino acid tyrosine, right? And then it also has iodine in it as well. The problem is that thyroid gland, for its proper functioning, depends on a number of different conditions. One, free fatty acids need to be low. Two, amino acids such as cysteine, tryptophan, and methionine also need to be low. Three, the hormonal balance needs to be optimal as well. Estrogen is a potent suppressor of the thyroid gland. So is cortisol. So is aldosterone. So it's parathyroid hormone, they actually have an inverse relationship. So a number of different conditions need to be kind of like ripe and optimal in order for in order for a thyroid gland to synthesize. And by the way, it synthesizes mostly T4, and then that T4 gets converted in the liver into T3. But either way, just because the thyroid gland is healthy doesn't mean it will be allowed to do its job. It depends on the environment. Ultimately, it is the environment because if you're under stress that will generate a specific hormonal milieu inside of you, and that will r- largely control whether the thyroid will take over or your adrenals will take over. So it's hard to force the thyroid gland to produce thyroid hormone when the, the, the signal from the outside is thyroid shouldn't be in charge, cortisol should be in charge. Mm-hmm.
0: Sweet. Uh, there is a dollar super chat for a message redacted. Uh, so thank you for that, whoever you are. Uh, Javier says, tips to protect yourself from long, long sun exposure.
1: Kind of went over this. Um I think I mentioned it just a few months ago. Basically, um, aspirin niacinamide will be great. Um, caffeine is actually is actually a uh, like a sunscreen. I think a chemical version of it. It protects from DNA damage, which is what the UV lights do. And that's large. That's part of their carcinogenic effect. Um, it doesn't protect so much from the lipid peroxidation. But for that, you can do vitamin E, you can do aspirin, and you can do niacinamide it would be, would be my, my top three choices. Um, and or if you don't have any supplements, simply increasing the amount of saturated fat um, largely prevents the, the peroxidation effects from happening in the diet. So so a few spoons of coconut oil or just eating more butter uh, largely negates the negative effects.
0: Uh, Schman Frontal says, what causes hypothyroidism, e.g. low heart rate, temp, dandruff, Even if lab values are very good, we've tested reverse T3, but it's good too. Undereating maybe?
1: Uh, Undereating can cause it, but uh, basically you don't have to have – so for example, elevated free fatty acids can prevent the thyroid from actually binding to its receptor. um, And also they increase the speed with which thyroid hormone dissociates from its receptor. Um, The polyunsaturated fats can actually act as thyroid receptor antagonists. Um, and so you can have you can actually be producing normal amounts of thyroid hormone and you can be converting enough of it into T3. but if the, if that receptor at the cell it, 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 inside the cell, if it's being blocked by uh, you know a high level of polyunsaturated fatty acids, then you'll have a, so what's called functional hypothyroidism in spite of the normal the normal lab values. So one of the things that I've noticed help a lot of people that don't respond well to thyroid is just taking a little bit of aspirin and niacinamide just to lower the free fatty acids. Usually, dramatically increases their response even to very low doses of T3. And even if that doesn't help, then it's usually some kind, some kind of a either um, you know low grade endotoxin overload can also prevent you from responding to thyroid, or there is a chronic infection going on somewhere. Uh, and uh, the latter one, I think Ray. As mentioned in a few of his interviews, people asked him like, "I don't respond to even high doses of T3." And Ray said, "If you don't respond to 50 micrograms, which in his opinion is a huge dose, then uh, you may want to do some additional tests, like a complete blood count, um, you know, or, or some other biomarkers that can point to a, you know, potentially chronic bacterial infection somewhere."
0: Sweet, and I don't know if I read it, but Shimon Frontal was was for five. Pounds or euros, uh, I think. So thank you for that. And thank you, Javier, for the $2 donation. Uh, Shafiel out an hour for four ninety nine. Thank you so much, uh, Shafiel. Or uh, I won't even try. Uh, how to mitigate the effects uh, uh, of the white, blue, yellow lights if you don't have access to red light? Would you know where to get good quality red light?
1: <laughs> so um I don't know about good quality red light. I think any any red light bulb... Uh, over a 100 watts would, would be good in my opinion. Um, and you only need one to really get the benefits. Um, but you know more more light bulbs will allow you to have to, to achieve more with shorter exposure. Um, I have two and one of them is actually like so basically I have two LED bulbs. Uh, each one of them has eight LED diode, eight LED units inside. Each bulb is 50 watts. Uh, I bought them from Amazon and basically I have two lights of 50 watts each but they are rated as being equivalent to a 200-watt incandescent light bulb. Mm. So I essentially have the equivalent, the light equivalent, of 400 watts of, of, of red light. Uh, but you don't need that much. Um, I, I have two lights, but I only one is turned on. You don't need both. I, I feel like even one is enough for me. So uh, if you you can buy, like I said, you don't have to go fancy, anything on Amazon or any other location that sells incandescent or LEDs. Um that are you know in the 650 nanometer spectrum um up to 700 is probably going to be good enough even green and yellow light bulbs have benefits green light i think was found to be especially good for promoting uh long restorative sleep deep restorative sleep um and uh, so if red is not available yellow or green would should work or orange should work just as well or even the regular white incandescent light should be fine and in terms of protecting yourself most of the uh, effects of the of blue and uh, and can, and uh, fluorescent lights is due to the inhibition of cytochrome c oxidase, um, and if you don't have the light, the red light to oppose that, uh, other good uh, chemical uh, antagonists of the blue light would be methylene blue, um, or magnesium or zinc, all of which tend to um, remove that block that red light is is, is causing on that crucial enzyme C oxidase.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, Shafi also says for 199, thank you so much. He says, what is the cause of autism, serotonin nutrition? So the elevator pitch for what causes autism.
1: The causes are multiple, but serotonin at this point, there is serious evidence that serotonin is a major cause, uh, both because uh, multiple studies have shown that women with, with the, who use SSRI drugs, uh, their children have a, a much higher rate than what is even already a very high rate in the general population. I think the general population at this point is 2.5%. And women who, who, who are using or have used SSRI drugs, even before they got pregnant, even if they stopped it, if, even if they stopped the drugs during the pregnancy, um, I think the rate for those women is about 17%. Um, so serotonin is most certainly involved. Um, other things that seem to be involved is also, a general hypothyroid state. Now, serotonin itself actually has a direct toxic effect on brain on brain cells, especially the, the, the dopamine-producing um, uh, cells. Um, so it, it can create, and I posted a few studies about that, that Parkinson's disease is now actually been shown to be, most of the symptoms to be caused by excessive serotonin and not by a lack of dopamine. But it's, it's serotonin that seems to have a toxic role in killing those dopamine-producing cells in the substantia nigra. Um, and many people with autism seem to also have movement disorders, which are which are heavily correlated with uh, some kind of a damage in the dopaminergic system of the brain. So, in my opinion, serotonin is a prime cause and other probably l- less major causes, of course, hypothyroidism is, is right up there with serotonin. But things such as, you know, protein deficiency, uh, can pr- probably cause it, in my opinion. Salt, not anything enough salt. Um, not only because um, salt, uh, because the serotonin transporter, which deactivates serotonin, not only because it's dependent on sodium, but also because general lack of sodium in the diet tends to increase the stress system, the sympathetic nervous system. Uh, so high adrenaline, um, you know, high uh, not so much not adrenaline, but high adrenaline, high cortisol. Um, these things also tend to damage the brain. Of the fetus, or at the very least, steer its direction towards uh, a very, a very, you know, very short attention span and and lack of empathy, which are some of the defining features of autism. Uh, So poor nutrition can definitely cause autism, in my opinion. Um, Extensive exposure to um, EMF, um, especially, um, I I, actually several women wrote to me that they um, slept uh, with their Bluetooth earpieces on. Uh, and they were using them all the time while while they were pregnant. And they're pretty certain that uh, that's contributing because they didn't use SRI drugs. Their diet was pretty good. Not a single person in their family history has had autism. Mm-hmm. So the only thing they can ascribe this to is that uh, they actually used EMA, uh, EMF-emitting devices. And two of the women actually were diagnosed also with men- meningiomas. These are benign tumors of the meninges. So it's kind of like a brain tumor. It's not, it's not malignant. But it's heavily associated with uh, with with EMF exposure. The singer Cheryl Crow was diagnosed recently with a cancer, with a tumor of that type. Mm-hmm. And in her case, the doctor actually directly told her that it's most likely because of her habit, uh, with, with because of her addiction to her cell phone. And she said that she used to be on the phone with her mom for five to six hours a day, um, you know, on a daily basis. Wow. Uh, and the doctor basically agreed that, uh, in his opinion, that's that's a that's probably the direct cause. Um, ionizing radiation, a huge factor as well. So, if a pregnant woman has to get any dental work, I would either postpone it or categorically refuse to get X-rays, even though, of course, the doctor will tell you, "Oh, it's the same amount of dosage, uh, the same amount of exposure as you're getting from a, you know, uh, a flight from DC to LA." None of that's true. We know about the difference in absorbance mm-hmm. b- b- based on altitude, and also. Um, the the dentist will tell you, but it's localized. We're only irradiating your jaw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the jaw is very close to the brain. And remember, brain controls everything. Mm-hmm. The brain of the mom is a very intimate and powerful effect on the development of the fetus. Mm-hmm. Anything that affects that brain negatively will likely affect the development of the fetus as well. Um, so avoidance of ionizing radiation and uh, um, other things... Uh, I think many women are, many pregnant women are being told to take multivitamin supplements that are very heavy on iron. Um, I don't understand the rationale for that unless there is proven iron deficiency. So, if the doctor is pushing you to take these, and many of the prenatal vitamins are really, really heavy on iron. So, you can actually get iron toxicity. So, if the doctor is pushing you to take prenatal vitamins, I would ask for an iron test first, not just serum iron, but the whole iron panel would ferritin, transferrin, and iron saturation index before you agree to any of these uh, barbaric treatments.
0: Thank you for that, uh, Emma, for the, the 50 Australian dollars. Thank you so much, Emma. Uh, hello, friends. Can't wait to join in. And just a reminder, sh- reminder, she'll be here on the 9th of August to join us. Super excited. Uh, Corey P for $5 says, what are the best ways to protect, fortify the body against vaccines? Thank you both.
1: Um, several studies have shown that just good nutrition is enough, So, but you have to take the vaccines. Some of the things that help would be uh, increasing, by the way, the amount of reactive oxygen species produced. Um, and I posted a study showing that just having like a higher rate of ROS production can actually detoxify the body from a number of the endocrine disruptors uh, and, and toxins that are present in, in the water supply or the food supply. Um, and among those toxins were also listed a number of adjuvants present in the vaccine as well. So, and some of the adjuvants used to be mercury, but I think now they've replaced it with aluminum and, and, and squalane and, and some other um, organic and inorganic chemicals that are triggering an immune reaction. And basically you can prevent many of those side effects by simply keeping metabolism high. Um, other adjuvants that are put in the vaccines uh, are known to be activators of the TLR4 receptor. So things that block that receptor will probably uh, negate to a great degree the damage that th- these adjuvants are doing. So things like cyproheptadine, any anti-serotonin chemicals should help. But in general, the tricyclic older antidepressants such as nortriptyline, amitriptyline, cyproheptadine, mianserin. Even benadryl actually has a, a, a serotonin antagonist effect and is a known TLR4 antagonist as well. Naltrexone would be another good one. Um, so aspirin would probably not be a bad idea either uh, because aspirin lowers both histamine and serotonin contents in the in the in the blood. Um, and a number of studies have shown that the rate of adverse reactions to vaccine is heavily is very highly positively correlated with the amount of plasma serotonin and aspirin lowers that. So, um, you know, that would be a good way, good and cheap way to protect yourself.
0: Sweet. Thank you. Uh, Brian Thomas for $20. Thank you so much, Brian. He says a friend of mine has a third kidney from a kidney, a kidney transplant and now is required to take immunosuppressants, uh, for the rest of her life. What can she do to get off of that or lower her need for it? If anything.
1: Um, I don't know if there's anything that can be done to to get off of it completely. Simply because that kidney is from another person, and 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 she will always be producing antibodies to the organ. So unless she wants she wants to you know get it, the body to reject it, mm. some sort of an immunosuppressant will probably need needed. There are some older studies that show that uh, progesterone may be able to dampen that excessive immune response um, and can prolong the tolerance of what they call an allograft. In other words, a foreign organ that's being transplanted. Um, but I don't know of any human studies recently that have been done with progesterone. To, to me, the progesterone would be the safest immunosuppressant. It's not an immunosuppressant; it simply dampens an excessive immune reaction, which would be the case for a transplanted organ. Uh, but other than that, I, I, you know, for as long as you have the transplant, I think some kind of immunosuppression will be needed.
0: Sweet. Thank you for that, Brian. Uh, James for 20 pesos says, Does Ray believe in God? Seems not. Uh, I don't think we can answer that. <laughs> but but uh, I think Arian in the chat said that Ray has said that his own view was closest to David Griffin's um, process theology. Uh, but if I... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Me and you have talked about this. I, Ray has a more... You're
1: actually, you're- You interviewed Ray and he directly answered it. Like you basically said, so, so, you know, so you said basically, so if people, so you have to jump to like a create, so you have to, if you believe in a creator, you're kind of jumping to conclusions that haven't yet happened. Mm -hmm. And Ray said that, yes, uh, if you, if you have to jump means you're not there. So you're making like a leap of faith. And to him, God was uh, existence, consciousness, the process of things always being like this process of continuous creation, Mm. things always happening with your participation to him. That was the equivalent of what people call God.
0: Yeah. And he mentioned that he thought like the religions place, God in creation somewhere else, but that he thought it was happening at the the local level. And he also, um, Uh, For anybody that listened to my conversation with Jay Dyer, I asked Ray about Jay's type of philosophy and Ray, uh, and you'll be able to articulate this better than I can, but he thinks everything has a field and nothing has a private independent field. And so this is, uh, I I think it's similar to that process theology where everything is always changing because every uh, like substances uh, field is interacting with another field. And therefore it's, constantly under revision and so
1: scientifically ahead. the theory that describes this is the David bomb version of quantum mechanics mm-hmm. so he basically talks about a global wave and everything being affected and interacting with each other so the so he basically in quantum physics he says that the configuration and the state of every elementary particle in the universe uh, uh, is dependent all the time instantaneously in real time On the configuration of every other particle in the universe Mm -hmm. so in a very real sense you and i and everything else that exists is in in interacting with continuously modified and modifying everything else in the universe as well and it Mm -hmm. happens in real time as we speak right now the the speed of light is not a barrier to that it's not it's not a limiting factor
0: sweet yeah and that brings up questions of ether and where the matter is Coming from, which yes. I I don't know those answer those questions. Uh, thank you for that, James. Uh, movie bomb for two dollars says, uh, "How high should temperature be later in the
1: night?" I would say anything above. Uh, I would say ninety nine degrees is probably ideal. Um, anything higher than ninety nine point five tends to make people sweat, um, and basically at some point they will probably wake up from thirst because once you start losing enough water, eventually thirst will kick in and you'll wake up. So Mm. anything that, that, that you can maintain anything above 98 degrees, in my opinion, that allows you to maintain uninterrupted sleep. So for some people that they can, they they actually have a really high set uh, temperature point. And I know people who have have a temperature in the hundreds, it's not, it's, it's 100.4, something like that. And I think that's like the, that's the, that's the, uh, this is the limited, which after that they call it a fever, uh, at least for newborns. And uh, I know people who do that and maintain that set point by using the uncoupler dinitrophenol and they sleep like babies through the night. But I also know others who, if they raise their temperature above, above 98 degrees, they have to wake up every two hours and drink something. So I think it depends highly on your individual state of health, like uh, I've noticed that people with extra amount of body fat, they cannot tolerate, initially, they cannot tolerate higher temperatures that well. They tend to get thirsty very easily. They, they wake up very easily, and uh, they have to drink or eat just to maintain their blood sugar stable. Um, so, yeah, my my idea would be, at least for me, I've noticed that it's around 99 degrees. I know people who do well with a higher one, and I know people who cannot do more than 98 And uh, it really is dependent on the individual health state.
0: And Steph M for uh, $31.41. Thank you so much, Steph. Uh, So we raised $136 for Ray plus whatever Google tax that is. But I think, I think uh, Google just sent me hundred dollars, which I need to send to Ray. So this is really good. Uh, So I'm excited. Thank you guys so much for those super chats. Uh, We are going to take a call. (laughs) And this is, this this will probably be, this will probably be a shoot show, but we're going to try it anyways. Um, so let me, let me close this, let me change the screen. And so you should be able to see the phone number now. I honestly have no idea how this is going to go, but, uh, so that is the number to call. And then that we, we should be able to talk to you. Uh, but I, this like barely worked when we tested it before the show. Oh, uh, Jason Herrera, uh, says, thanks Danny and Georgie. Appreciate your wisdom. Thank you so much, Jason. I know Jason, he's a great dude. So thank you so much for that. Uh, yeah. Okay. No calls yet, but we'll just hang out until we get one and see what happens.
1: (laughs) I thought your mom was calling. But now, now
0: you'll, she's, you. Yell at her she's yelling. She's probably legitimately mad at me because I didn't <laughs> didn't respond to her phone call. Yes. But um, so we'll give it a few more minutes. Anything else on the horizon, Georgie? What are you working on right now?
1: Um, I'm actually working on two new products. Um, one of them would be a fatty acid oxidation inhibitor. If everything works fine, um, similar but much more potent than the drug Mildrenate. I think I mentioned this the last time. And also, I'm looking at two serotonin, anti-serotonin chemicals. One of them is a TPH inhibitor similar to phenclonine, but it's much more potent. It's a similar chemical, uh, but it's much more potent and much more longer-lasting. So you should be able to achieve the same uh, by using a much smaller dosage and, as such, hopefully limiting the risk of side effects. The other one is a serotonin antagonist, which is a derivative of camphor, uh, and I, Ray holds camphor in very high esteem. So do I. There are multiple studies. This is one of the most ancient drugs in usage. Uh, it's probably about as ancient as, as aspirin, if maybe even, even more ancient, because the ancient Egyptians were using camphor as a drug and as an embalming chemical long before they started writing about using willow bark um, and and you know sell and willow bark willow bark extracts. So those are, so yeah, two ser- anti-serotonin chemicals and one um, one uh, fatty acid oxidation inhibitor and one other chemical, which Ray mentioned only once in one interview, but he spoke so highly of it that I've been on the hunt for that for, for the last three years. The chemical name is hyperforin and it's extract, it's present in the herb St. Jones' worth. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ray, in, in that interview, I think it was a KMUD interview he basically said it was so. The Russians in the 50s and the 60s did a lot of research with it, and this drug apparently can cure. That's that was the word he used, and I've looked at the studies. They use the same language. It can cure any psychiatric condition with in a matter of hours and with a single dose only. So it would be very interesting if we can get that. If uh, structurally, it's similar to the chemical artemisinin. Which now many people in the forum and you know outside the forum are using is cancer treatment, so it's a it's a similar structurally similar chemical, um, and it does act act as a redox balancer. Of course, it shifts the probably one of the main reasons it's okay, so effective. Okay,
0: is- okay, you know we're getting a, our first call. <laughs> okay, let's okay, so we'll see how this goes. Hello, you are on the air. Who is this? Hello. Hello. Hi. is You know, is Georgie still there with me? I'm here. Okay. Hi. Do you want to introduce yourself? You are on there.
2: air. Yeah. Um, I'm Ricky. Hey, Ricky. And I'm Connison, Texas. I think I I've spoken with you on, on the video call before.
0: Oh, cool. On Patreon? Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. I, I think I remember. How are you?
2: Um, I'm hanging in there, man. Oh. <laughs> I had a question. Um, what, what could cause the body to feel like it's overheating on, um, and just you know, a simple 75 degree uh, normal weather um, but the core temperature auxiliary seems to be 97 8, 98 not above that and, and the body feels like it's burning up and you have to cool down
3: otherwise you have like a huge bowel movement and it's just very uncomfortable
1: Georgie? Yes, uh, I've actually experienced this myself and I know people who have done blood tests. It most of the cases, it's due to high serotonin slash endotoxin, which coincides with you said that uh, basically uh, uh, there is a bowel movement involved as well. So uh, I've noticed that just uh, even like a one or two milligrams of cyproheptadine or on dancitron very quickly br- brings down that that feeling of of excessive heat. Um, so uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's driven by by excessive serotonin but the ultimate cause is is the endotoxin the increased permeability so aspirin may help as well but my personal experience is that anti-serotonin drugs are pretty good and pretty quick at uh, at getting this under control
3: got it okay
1: cool all good
0: ricky
3: <laughs> yeah thanks sir thank i appreciate you guys
0: cool brother thank you for calling talk to you soon you got it all right bye Wow! I can't believe that worked. Oh my god! Awesome! Amazing. Does anybody else want to call in? We'll continue talking about the the new ID Labs products, but uh, give us a call and we'll stop and and chat a little bit. I'm I'm like flabbergasted that that worked because <laughs> this was like this was really not working when we uh, tried this out. This is so much fun. Um, okay, Georgie, uh, pick up. Uh, I was going to ask you about Fisotin. Did you, you know, that's like something Ray has mentioned a few times, but yes, I, what... it's
1: one of the, one of the flavonoids in orange juice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's basically, I think it's similar structurally to uh, Naringin and, and Apigenin. Um, and I found out, I, I'm guessing one of the reasons Ray holds uh, them in such a high esteem is that both Apigenin and naringenin are actually phytoprogestogens. Mm-hmm. So they activate both the progesterone receptor A and B um, they're slightly weaker than progesterone in terms of affinity and how well they activate, but they are among the most potent natural pro- fetal progestrogens, and which means they're they basically they're opposing estrogen at the receptor level. And I think the fact that physetin, one of the most one of, one of one of its most widely recognized effects is that it basically opposes clotting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in some countries actually is used as a clot busting natural medicine which speaks, which which corroborates the idea that phycetin is probably also a phytoprogesterone and works as a as an antagonist of estrogen. Um, but you can buy phycetin. It's available on, on Amazon. It's it's isolated. You can, I don't know how good quality it is, uh, but uh, yeah, um, I just didn't think that there'll be a need for it because people can either buy as a supplement or drink it from orange juice. I. I, I-
0: yeah, I don't know why. That was one of the things I I've, I've heard him drop that a few times and I I wasn't sure uh what it was about, but um you, I we I kind of interrupted you. You were you were talking about the second
1: uh supplement though. Yeah, the hyperforin is a chemical that's is similar to artemisinin. Uh you may have seen it in the news. not in the news, but actually University of Arizona is running large-scale clinical trials for cancer with artemisinin. Uh, and they're trying to patent certain variations of it, so it, it will probably start hitting the news more than it is now. But there's been there've been quite a few discussions on the forum and and on the internet as well that uh, it's basically hard to miss it in is this semi quinone. Oh, you know, what? We're, we're we're getting a call. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay.
0: Okay. Hello. You are on the air with me and my buddy Georgie. Who's this?
2: Oh, uh, this is Nathan.
0: Nathan, how are you, sir?
2: Pretty good. How are you, man?
0: Good. What was your
2: question? <laughs> yeah, I just, I just wanted to ask a little bit about um, like exercise in general. And I, I know that there's some uh, differing opinions on how often and what types. And I just wanted to get you know you and Georgie's uh, opinion on it.
0: Cool. Georgie, do you want to dig in?
1: Yeah. So um, I know there's a like – many people think that Ray is against the so-called endurance exercise. Um, I think he mentioned several times, and I agree, that if you can – Maintain a run or like a, or riding your bicycle at a pace where you can maintain a normal conversation It means you're still producing enough Carbon dioxide and you're not raising your lactic acid level to the point where it becomes detrimental So keeping the pace to the level where you can maintain conversation is important and also keeping the the so-called endurance exercise uh, not too long maybe like no more than uh, 45 minutes to an hour is important because after that you will probably have depleted your glycogen and then even a low intensity exercise will switch you into the uh, the oxidation of fatty acids and you can actually sense that moment because while you're running on glycogen you'll feel like you'll, your muscles have a significant amount of strength of power and then after you switch to fatty acid oxidation basically like the explosive power of the muscles declines because you're switching from the, using the, you know, white the so-called wide muscle fibers to the, you know, red uh, slow twitch muscle fibers that are relying mostly on oxidation of fat. So you'll be able to run longer, but you will feel like your strength is diminishing. Um, and that usually, it depends a lot on the person, but usually 45 minutes to an hour is enough to deplete the glycogen. And then at that point, I would stop. Um, and in terms of, strength exercise resistant exercise almost any any exercise and any amount is good as long as you're not getting to the point where your muscles are sore for multiple days at a row it probably means you're overtraining um and ray said something like just using a few light dumbbells, dumbbells and you know doing like 10 to 15 minutes a day is fine i think you can do more like if you're into bodybuilding there's no harm in doing more as long as you're not getting to the point where you need either steroids to recover or, you know, you have multiple days of muscle soreness. That means you're, you know, you're overexerting yourself. Uh, to me, um, and I think there was a study that did like an analysis of what's the optimal frequency of resistance training. And they said three times a week at 45 minutes was optimal. That is what generated the most amount of muscle mass and lost the most amount of fat while also keeping muscle breakdown. And kidney damage, which can happen if you overtrain yourself um, at at a minimum level. So, if nothing, I mean, if you want to start, my guidelines will be try the forty-five minutes three times a week. But be cognizant this is not a golden rule. Uh, monitor how quickly you recover, and if it takes you like two or three days to get back into shape and be able to lift again, it means that's too much. So I would scale down. And if not, you can do more.
2: Awesome. Well, I mean, very informative. Did you anything to say about
0: that? Huh? Uh, the only thing I would add is uh, I think I have like a 1947 reference of the Merck manual and they list hypothyroidism and then they list all the symptoms. And then towards the end of that, they say uh, something like exercise should be stopped or greatly restrained if a person is hypothyroid. And so, again, I don't think anybody should take their exercise advice from me, but like the... I I just feel like the the majority of people I talk to that are really into exercise, it would probably benefit them to stop their exercise. You know, so that's oh, like wait, wait. It, literally the my only point of view on it.
2: Okay, cool, man. I appreciate it, guys.
0: Cool, brother. Thank you so much for calling. Okay, we have a, another Take call. Easy. This is incredible. I am so excited. <laughs> okay, hello. You are on the air with me, Danny and Georgie. Who is this?
2: Hey James here.
0: Hey James, how are you, sir?
2: Good. Uh, quick question: Theoretically, what do you think is the best way to make the body more conductive, electrically conductive?
1: George, uh, keep the levels of free fatty acids low. They actually act as insulators, and uh, uh, I don't, I don't know if you know, but but uh, the 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 potency of anesthetics. Correlates highly with their solubility in oil, and a number of different fatty acids are actually known for their anesthetic effects, and they can even they can even put you into a coma if they're injected intravenously. Um, like uh, even saturated fats can do that, and it shows you. And uh, well, it hasn't been proven conclusively, but one of the leading theories is that if you assume the is electronic and depends on the flow of electrons, uh, the fatty acids as insulators, especially at the nerve level, uh, suggest that they decrease, well, if not the conductance, they decrease the flow of electrons through the channels that create consciousness. So my advice would be keeping lipolysis low uh, through aspirin, niacinamide, or any other drug, or in general, keeping stress low because it's stress that increases the uh, the amount of uh, free fatty acids in the blood. Did you catch that? I know so mineral
2: balance. Yeah, uh, mineral balance. You don't think would be a big
1: factor? It uh, it 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 will contribute, but in general, like basically, unless you're severely depleted in in all of the minerals, it probably wouldn't be that big of a factor because most of the minerals, at least the four major ones, they can fill in for each other's role. So it's very so. Let's say if you're deficient on something like calcium and sodium, or even magnesium, it'll be very hard to be deficient in potassium because potassium is in the cell. And it's tightly bound to cell proteins. Um, And unless the cell ruptures, it will be very difficult to have potassium deficiency. So unless you're somehow deficient in all of these ions, then I don't think it will will play that big of a role in in, in regulating conductance.
0: Right. Thank you. Cool, brother. Thank you for calling. Uh, We have
1: another call.
0: Um, This is so fun. Hello, you are on the air with Danny and Georgie. Who is this? Hi,
2: this is uh, David. How you doing?
0: Hey, David, how are you?
2: Oh, I'm I'm awesome. Big fans of you guys. Super <laughs> uh, cool to be on online with you guys right now.
0: Yeah, total pleasure. Do you have a question for Mr. Georgie Dinkog?
2: I do. I do. I uh, I'm 46 years old. Um, I started going ball probably I don't know 26, 27 um you know i'm not worried about the baldness or anything like that anymore i'm cool <laughs> having a shaved head but um but uh, the the issue that i'm having now at 46 is prostate i think is, is pretty it's pretty big so um you know i get up a lot at night to have to urinate and it's driving me nuts i'm trying i've, I've bought a lot of uh supplements from uh from georgie I've, i mean i've been doing the repeat stuff for a long time i i got <sighs> kind of I caught wind of Ray Pete, um, just doing searches on high iron. I learned at a, at a really young age that I had high iron. So I made the connection between the high iron, the heart disease and the baldness and all that, you know, and then I've just been learning a lot of stuff, but I, I don't know what to do. (laughs) I've tried everything. I've, you know, I've done the thyroid. Um, I haven't done too much of the antibiotics. Um, so I'm just looking for any suggestions.
1: So two direct causes that I've seen in, co- confirmed multiple times in uh, studies with humans, two direct causes of prostate problems are endotoxin and adrenaline. Uh, in fact, uh, apparently now there is a uh, push in some states, not all of them, but basically the drugs, the beta blockers like propranolol um, or clonidine are actually used to treat benign prostate hyperplasia. Um, I don't know exactly what, what kind of condition you have on the prostate, but if it's if it's basically Prostatitis or benign prostate hyperplasia adrenaline and or endotoxin are likely involved um, so um, You can try one of those drugs to see if it's the adrenaline angle if it's the endotoxin, then um, I, I Didn't catch did you try antibiotics or you didn't yet? Um, or you're considering them but charcoal?
2: Uh, I, I do charcoal here and there. Uh, I've done it enough to know that it, it didn't solve the problem. It's probably helping mm-hmm. uh, okay. and uh, you know, so I ordered some antibiotics here recently, and I'm going to try those out. I feel pretty confident. And um, I was also curious, too, Georgie, um, I, there for a while I was doing high doses of uh, niacinamide based on uh, some recommendations you had made. and I, I'd sleep really good, but I, I felt like I probably um, was even more frequent, you know, getting up and having to go to the bathroom but it felt like it was more of a therapeutic, you know, uh, release, okay. you know, um, you know, so, and now I'm kind of doing like the low dose niacinamide throughout the day. Um, just kind of experimenting with both. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Um, I think niacinamide, it has a very potent anti-inflammatory effect as well. So that may be, uh, what's kind of like solving the immediate problem, which is the irritation of the prostate. Um, but as right. far as addressing the endotoxin angle, so, if, if you don't want to do the antibiotics, anti-serotonin drugs, and especially the blockers of the 5-HT3 receptor, such as Ondansetron or any other 5-HT3 blocker, have been shown to be able to, to kind of seal the gut barrier and almost completely prevent the absorption of endotoxin in the bloodstream. So And, and that should largely eliminate the, the, the irritation of the prostate, which is caused by, by the endotoxin. Um, so if, if, if endotoxin is, is the issue. So, but that's what I've seen, you know, either adrenaline or endotoxin um, are the direct causes of most issues with the prostate. And then as you get older, um, you know, the increase of the estrogen to the androgens ratio cannot cause other things, in, including prostate cancer, but I don't think you're at that level yet.
2: Okay. Well, well, thank you all very much. So those drugs you mentioned, are those, those uh, prescription-only drugs, or those drugs you can acquire online.
1: Uh, on Dancetron, I think you can actually buy it as a veterinary drug. Um, I know uh, when I searched for it online, I, I found a few websites in the states where you can actually buy it for horses and cats and even dogs. Uh, if you don't have that, then you can try like a, you can. I mean, probably even cyproheptadine or even ketotype, but they're non-selective serotonin antagonists. And the studies that I've seen for prostate and endotoxin, used specifically on on Dansetron, which is you know the main drug used for nausea, uh, it's widely available. If you go to a doctor and say like you have nausea, you probably get a script like that they won't even test you for anything. It's it's such a it's such a benign drug and it's given to pretty much everybody with any complaints about nausea or indigestion.
2: Okay, can I ask one more last question? Sure. Um, like, so would you recommend doing, if I, you know, you think that there's a chance that the antibiotics um, might solve the problem if I were to do it, my thoughts are doing small doses all throughout the day, um, kind of spread it out. Um, what are your
1: thoughts? What kind of antibiotics are you using?
2: Uh, I was going to try penicillin.
1: Penicillin? What was that? Penicillin. Listen. So, usually, to me, like, a sign that the antibiotic is working is basically increasing the frequency of bowel movements without causing diarrhea. So, it's like, if you if you used to have, like, one bowel movement before, even less frequently, and now you're having, like, three after every meal without getting diarrhea, to me, that's a sign that the antibiotic is working. If you're not getting that effect, then it's probably, even though it's decreasing endotoxin, it's not killing off the microbiome to the point where, it's really reducing the endotoxin therapeutically,
2: okay. so yes, yeah, I don't really have I don't usually have diarrhea, but I, a lot of times I will have constipation. That's real common yeah. for me. so, and my stomach that, is, has become uh, more bloated. Um, I used to do a lot of fasting, but now, like my stomach is uh, now that I'm you know i'm I'm feeling better, I don't I think my adrenaline is low. I think it's endotoxin though. I think um. I think that's what it is. I'm calmer. I feel really good and stable. I have good energy. and My muscle mass has been building. A lot of positives, but it's just, that, just the, the urination thing. is just like
0: my hang-up. Cool. Cool. Thank you so much for calling, David. We'll probably call uh, take one more call. Thank you so much. Hello? David? Oh. Still there? Oh, I hope I didn't okay. boot him off.
1: <laughs> I don't think I did. Uh, you probably thought like you're, you're trying to cut him off or something. I, I
0: was going to let him finish. I was just going to take this one last call. David, I apologize. I didn't, uh, I don't know what happened there. Okay. One last call. Hello. You are on air with Danny and Georgie. Who's this?
3: Oh, hi. It's uh, James calling from
0: England. Hey James, how are you?
3: Hi there, man. Uh, I thought I'd just jump on the back of that last antibiotic question. Um, I, 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 I'm I suffering from extreme stress and anxiety. Every second of every day is just filled with this, this feeling of dread and OCD and anxiety. Um, you know, all of the typical repeat things aren't really working, like the, the niacinamide, the aspirin, et cetera, T3, Pregnenolone. Nothing can just give me a temporary bit of relief to be able to like change my whole lifestyle and I, I need something to help me. So I'm going down this antibiotic route. And I'm on like day four of amoxicillin. I'm just wondering, it's not doing anything. Do I just forget that and move on to the next one?
0: Can I answer? I I feel like I'm a cheerleader for antibiotics, but I I feel like... Out of all the things Ray has talked about, they're one of the things that have like reliably improved my my quality of life. And I felt comfortable taking antibiotics because Ray would specifically mention penicillin and the macrolides as, and tetracyclines specifically as being safer versions of antibiotics, you know, and, um, I don't yep. know, man. I, I feel like there have been times where I've been in a, a blue mood for no apparent reason. Like there, my life is very good and I have no r- real, I like if I'm obsessed with the past or something, that's not really normally me. And so yeah. there have occasionally been times where I've taken uh, some minocycline or some erythromycin or clarithromycin or penicillin, or even combined them together. And it seems like it will change my mood and my patterns of thinking like ex- very quickly. You know, and so I don't know if you're, if Mm -hmm. you're not experiencing any benefits from penicillin specifically, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it would be worth getting a macrolide and combining it or trying minocycline because to me, at least, uh, each antibiotic seems to have different effects, you know? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up if if just one didn't have any, any function. What was, what are your thoughts, Georgie?
1: So specifically the feelings of dread and constant anxiety, um, at least in the, like the human studies that I've seen, are highly correlated to either elevated either lactic acid or serotonin, and they often go hand-in-hand. Hand. Yeah. Um, so I have several clients who reported dramatic relief from even very low dose of methylene blue um, to the point where even like right, one right. milligram, just a few drops, it completely eliminated their anxiety, and older studies achieved the same by using either vitamin B1 thiamine either alone or in combination with the uh, carbonic anhydrase blocker acetazolamide. So, methylene blue does the same. Ultimately, the mechanism of action is lowering lactic acid and increasing carbon dioxide. Hmm. And if, in, in hospitals, sometimes when you go to the ER and you're having a panic attack, they're asking you to breathe in a paperback or they will give you like a like yeah. a, to, to breathe from a bottle that has 5% carbon dioxide gas inside of it. Um, so... Um, If you haven't tried bringing in a paper bag, you can try that just as a test of whether it's the lactic acid carbon dioxide angle. And if that's not helping much, then the next thing I would try is um, there are multiple studies that show that serotonin antagonists are pretty reliable anxiolytic drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, So to me, that would be the safer way than than doing things like, you know, the benzodiazepines, which are highly addictive, um, and they ultimately working through a very similar mechanism through serotonin, what, uh, what the blocking serotonin does as well. It allows the GABA system to take over, and it's usually the you know it's the it's the suboptimal GABA signaling that's causing the anxiety. And the two things that block GABA yeah. from doing its work is, is either high lactic acid or high serotonin. So trying to you know regulate either one of these uh, is is usually therapeutic.
3: The, the bizarre thing for me is I've tried so many anti-serotonin agents, though I, have, I haven't tried methylene blue, I will say. But I've tried very high doses of uh, ciproheptadine. I've tried t-n-t-t. um I've tried things that uh, – even benzodiazepines and something like Fennibut doesn't even touch my anxiety. It's, it's so strange. Do, do, but I will uh, try methylene blue.
0: Have you had lab tests for things like vitamin D in your thyroid function and things? Yeah.
3: Yeah. My vitamin D is not great. Um, it's, it's 25 on the American units that they use. Um, I'm trying to get as much sun as possible in, you know, the UK weather's horrendous, it, but every time I it, can get, a bit it, sun, I will it, get it,
0: it would probably be useful to use a supplement because the, I mean, that can have a profound effect on mood and orientation and wanting to do things like, uh, I, even a time in Mexico when I was Making time to lay out every day, I felt like I benefited from taking a supplement, so I was getting probably an hour of sun every single day, and even when doing that, yeah. I thought two or th- two two thousand four thousand i u- uh was helpful for me and so uh hmm. especially if if and it's something so simple that it doesn't have to be like oh, a magic mix of antibiotics or anti serotonin yeah. drugs like you don't want to do that if you don't have to, you know so
3: so I guess the question from that I'm wondering is, um, what's the max vitamin D uh, supplement I could take per day? What's safe? And I've tried the antibiotics. I'm, I'm on day four of uh, amoxicillin. I've been taking three 500 milligram tablets for four days. Sorry, this is the fourth day. It's not doing anything for me at all. Should I just kind of try a different one or try these other things now? Or do I need to give amoxicillin a longer time to just write that one off? That's not going to work for me.
1: Um. I would actually suggest doing some blood tests for steroids. Um, you know things like. Uh, oh yeah, they are
3: all sky high. Sorry, I, I, they're all sky high. <laughs> all sky what, high, sky yes. high? Well, cortisol, um, and then I've done the twenty-four hour year in dutch. I don't know. How, I don't know how reliable but it does correlate really well with what I'm experiencing. Like pregnenolone, all the uh, sub metabolites of pregnenolone, and same with progesterone. They're all every one of them is just so high.
1: Including yeah, well, thoughtful. So I, I really go go, 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 go ahead, yeah, Georgie. I was going to say uh, that right there, the, the very high cortisol would directly explain the feeling anxiety. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't know if you've like how high it is, but uh, if, if you've only done the Dutch test, I would follow that up with a blood test because the Dutch test on its own is it, it's not in, entirely reliable. So if you do the blood yeah. test for cortisol, I would ask the doctor to blood do blood both the as well. AM and the PM. Oh, that was uh, high as well.
3: Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> i am at high in the AM cortisol test as well yeah. in the
0: blood. Okay, we should probably wrap it up. I'm going to. Uh, there's one more caller, but <laughs> but uh, was there? You were asking what the dose of vitamin D. I think 5,000 IU is per day is what the vitamin D council says, and I think uh, 10,000 okay. is is fairly safe. I think if you go measure it, you know, um, but was
1: yeah and one more recommendation for me if cortisol is really high then you may want to try the progesterone route because it blocks cortisol at the receptor level and it's also acts on the gaba system so it, it's been shown to lower cortisol levels in humans as well 50 milligrams daily was enough to let to reduce cortisol by half in humans
0: okay all good okay, thank you
1: so much for calling sir
3: Cheers. Sorry about
0: it being so long. <laughs> no no worries at all. Cheers. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye, right, man. Bye. Uh, okay. So I think somebody called during that uh, call, but they hung up. Um, so we do have some more Super Chats to read. Uh, so we'll read the Super Chats, maybe take one more call, and then we'll get the hell out of here. <laughs> uh, so Jason Herrera, said, again, for 999. Thank you so much, Jason. Uh, Ricky, who called in. Thank you so much, Ricky. Uh, He says, thanks, gentlemen, for $5. Thank you. Nathan H. for $10 says, are there any safe and easy to obtain supplements to reduce the urge for sexual stimulus? Uh, I can't read it. It's blocked. Uh, Sexual stimulus and to free up time for productive endeavors for folks addicted to such things.
1: Um, I think the addiction to sex is, again, just like any addiction is driven by high-stress hormones. And, and or low dopamine, um, so things that lower cortisol have been shown to reliably cut the vicious cycle of many different types of addictions. I don't know; if I haven't seen any studies for you know for 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 uh, for uh, sexual stimulation, sexual addiction, but uh, for alcohol, opioid, um, you know, even even for marijuana addiction, if you believe that such exists, usually things like uh, uh, basically pregnenolone and progesterone are pretty reliable at, at uh, lowering the urge. Um, and some people um, have found relief from using pro dopamine chemicals, um, especially the dopamine agonist uh, called Pramipexol, I think is actually used clinically specifically for that. Um, and it's paradoxical because that specific chemical and most dopamine agonists are known to increase sexual function, yet it decreases the addictiveness of it. So, in other words, um, you know, it's even though uh, many people will think that having the urge to always engage in these sexual activities actually means you're over, over-sexualized. In reality, it's actually it's under. It's this dopamine hit. It's the increasing dopamine that you're craving because dopamine is the baseline dopamine is low. And that's what's driving people to into that behavior over and over again. So either lowering stress, lowering cortisol, or promoting dopamine, in, in my opinion, uh, um, would be helpful.
0: Sweet. Thank you so much for that. Okay, we're I'm waiting for one last call, but I don't. It doesn't seem to be arriving. <laughs> so with that, uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, new level of fun doing this with the Collins. And so again, I can't believe that worked because it didn't work at all when we were testing it out. Um, thank you guys so much. Thank you, Steph. Thank you all the people in the chat. Uh, 85 people here right now. We sincerely appreciate it. Georgie, your thoughts
1: um I, I actually really like the calls yeah. <laughs> uh, i mean i don't know if there's a way to do super chats for calls because then we can just be taking calls i, I thought it's like a because it, it, it's it's it becomes like a third person discussion right so it's an interaction that we haven't had before and i think uh i suspect the listeners like it even more than just the two of us answering questions
0: you broke up a little bit there, but, uh, yeah, I, that was, that was very fun. And again, I, I'm shocked that it worked. Um, awesome. So we will be back on the ninth with Emma Sirakis and we will fix these video issues, which you guys have endured this whole time. So, uh, thanks for that. And yeah. So, uh, yeah,
1: that, any parting words, Georgie? Uh, I think, I think what a great, I apologize for the lighting, and next time, I'll make sure I have better internet connection. But um, uh, actually, my screen also changed size a few times. So I think we, we do need to work on that. Uh, but I, I promise we'll have it fixed so until next time. And uh, uh, the giveaway will continue. If there are any specific products that people would like instead of the four that I proposed, please email me, contact me or him in any other way, and uh, I'll consider changing them because uh, I want to I want to give people what they want instead of what I think they want.
0: Cool. Thank you so much, Georgie. Thank you, everybody here listening right now. Thank you to all the callers. And again, I, we have an amazing listenership and comment. Oh, and I, don't, I didn't say this, but like, subscribe, and comment to be entered in the giveaway. And uh, I should have said that earlier. But anyways, thank you guys for everything. You guys are an amazing audience. Uh, have a safe weekend. Thank you to Georgie. Thank you to Steph. And we'll see you guys on the 9th with uh, Mrs. Emma Sarakis. Okay. Take care, guys.
2: Thank you.